The following is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. Yo, this is Rich Ladder here. We are across the street from MSG. NY, baby! New York City, Madison Square Garden. Hey, y'all boy, come on. Come yeah, on. man, Jeremy Donovan here from Keeping It Strong Style and Social Suplex. We're here with one half of the IWGP Heavyweight Tag Team Champions. And one half of Gorillas of Destiny, but one whole of Tama motherfucking Tonga. Realest of the realest. Hey, ain't nobody realer than Gorilla. Yo, this is Rich Ladder from One Nation Radio. This is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. We present to you the Ace of Podcasts, keeping it strong style. Let's go. It's the Ace of Podcasts, keeping it strong style. Covering New Japan, they ready to hold it down. Jeremy Donovan and the young boy Josh. Come and hit a job out in Barrio the Frost. From Tokyo Dome over to the G1. Social Suplex is the network where we can get it done. I'ma chill and let them have it, cause this is just an intro. Keeping the strong style, six stars from the get go, boy. Yeah, from Tampa Bay to the Tokyo Dome, this is Keeping It Strong Style with your host, Jeremy Donovan, and the young boy, Joshua Smith. And thank you for listening. Welcome to Keeping It Strong Style, the ace of podcasts on the Social Suplex Podcast Network. Jeremy Donovan here with the young boy, Josh Smith. On today's show, I'll review nights 10 through 13 of the 2022 New Japan Cup and cover all this news in the world of New Japan Pro Wrestling. You can support our show by subscribing and following the Social Suplex Podcast Network or keeping it strong style on the podcast app of your choice and leaving a rating interview. You can also get all the podcasts over at socialsuplex.com. Check out our Pro Wrestling Tea store, wrestlingtees.com slash socialsuplex. That's where you can get your official Keeping It Strong style t-shirt. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation by visiting socialsuplex.com slash donate and clicking on the donate button under the Keeping It Strong style logo. This episode is brought to you by the NJPWEXT, the only browser extension for NJPWWorld.com with features like dark mode. Improve translations and layouts, custom and share plus, synchronized viewing parties, and much, much more. It takes NJPW World to the next level. You can visit njpwext.us today for details. Young boy, how you doing, man? Uh, I'm doing all right. Glad to be back on the show uh, once again. Um, kind of tired. Long day? Well, you know, um, usually on a Sunday... That'll be like my time to like study, relax, reset, recalibrate for like the work re- the work week coming up, you know. Yeah. And uh, I mean, you know, I'm pretty busy at work, just that, and a lot of other different things I got going on. Plus, you know, we gotta watch all this New Japan Cup stuff. So I mean, there's just a lot. And uh, you know, as the listeners probably already know, we were at the uh, Strong tapings here in St. Pete um, on Sunday, and prior to that. We had our fan meetup, and prior to that, I had a family engagement. So it was just like boom, 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 go, go, go all day long. And I kind of just never caught back up, like on sleep, you know? Yeah, I feel you, man. Yeah, Sunday was a, a long day, man. Um, yeah, with the meetup and the show, and then uh, everybody's doing our, their thing beforehand. So yeah, Sunday was a, yeah. a long day. Yeah, man. I mean, um, we'll talk about the, uh, you know, the, the meetup. We'll talk about the, uh, 
the show, but I mean, 13 matches, four hours. I mean, it was a good show, but that was long. Plus, it's far from where I live, you know. Um, and unlike you, I had to go to work the next day. Yeah, you know, I, I try to be ahead when it comes to when it comes to you know these wrestling events and playing stuff off. So yeah, I, I ahead of time, I already took the day off, but you know, it wasn't really a, a very you know restful day where I could kick my feet up. It was a, a day of running around for uh, wedding planning and talking to different vendors and uh, cake tastings and all kind of stuff like that. So oh, I was running around all yesterday. So you did cake tasting yesterday? Yep, did some cake tasting. Did. Stuff for a uh, men's warehouse, get the, the groomsmen's suit rental all set up. and uh, Okay, that's fine. I, I mean, I don't care about the suits, but you went and did cake tasting yesterday without your best man. <laughs> well, I mean, my, I was sure my brother was working. No, no, no. I'm your best. I'm the best man. <laughs> okay, look at me. Look at me in the face. Look in my eyes. I'm the best man now, okay? We, we, we can tell the other Josh to take a hike, hit the bricks, you know? Oh, that's like the uh, Miro Kip Sabian storyline right now. <laughs> I'm the best man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Um, I would have definitely, like everything else you guys are doing for the wedding, I'm sure that stuff is fun for probably Jen, maybe you, I don't know, but I have no interest in it. But the cake tasting, that's something I definitely, if you'd give me the heads up, I would have taken the time off. I could have definitely <laughs> like gone and done that with you guys and, and given you my insight. I'm a, I don't know if you know this, like I am a, a you know connoisseur when it comes to cake. I could have given you world class input, and you know you guys probably picked bad cake. Now you're gonna have a bad wedding. I don't know. Yeah, miss missed opportunity. You could have had a five star cake. Now we're gonna may, maybe have a three and a half star cake if we're maybe, lucky. Maybe if you're lucky. If the bakers put their working boots on, you know, maybe. <laughs> may, maybe. <laughs> it's gonna. It has at least your cake's gonna have at least six tiers, right? <laughs> it, it'll be a surprise you'll, you'll see every tier is a star so if you have <laughs> you tell me how many tiers you got and that's how many stars this cake's gonna get i can tell you right now well you, you'll see i don't, I don't want to spoil anything you know <laughs> when you show up that day you, you'll see no i'm just playing i'm sure you guys did a good job i'm just jealous that's all <laughs> uh yeah but yeah good stuff there but yeah sunday uh strong style of off let's let's talk about it so we had the the fan meet up at the overflow brewery in uh saint pete yeah um thank you all to everybody that came out for the event uh, a lot of familiar faces and names um some unfamiliar some visitors but uh you know we're just glad to have people out and hang out and uh grab a few drinks in a, a cool location. I wish the two or three times I had called the brewery ahead of time when I asked, you guys got anything going on this day? Nope. We're putting you on the calendar. I wish they would have told me that they're having a live painting and music event that was going to take up two thirds of the entire brewery. That would have been uh, some, some valid information. But other than that, you know, the staff was nice. The drinks were good. The atmosphere was awesome. Good company. They let us hook up uh, Chromecast and put some New Japan on the uh, um, televisions there. So, you know, all in all, a good time. Yeah, really cool time. Like it's been good seeing some familiar faces and hanging out. Yeah, the drinks were really good there, and it's pretty cool. We got put Strong up there. We had Anoki versus Vader up there. Uh, then it somehow got switched to um, Dragon Gate at one point. 
with uh, you know Young Lion Okada out there wrestling Liger. I think they actually were playing Toriumon, mm. which you know I, I wasn't really a fan. I don't you know you come to a keeping a strong style you know party and you put on some Toriumon. Like I'll give them the pasks. They had CTU Liger and you know uh, Young Lion Okada up there, but uh, you know. Uh, I, don't, I don't fuck with that Toriumon, you know. It's flips. <laughs> they wrestle too fast, you know. Not enough selling. They don't, uh, they don't slow know? it down, you know. Don't give you time to, to register. There's no psychology. I didn't see a single limb get worked, you know. <laughs> There's no stories. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So yeah, that was cool. And then yeah, we headed over to the uh, Coliseum for the Strong Style Evolve. Strong TV tape, like you mentioned, uh, 13 matches, four-hour show. We're not going to go into results and give any spoilers. So don't worry about that. So it's going to be a spoiler-free talk right here. But, Josh, overall, what were your thoughts of the strong tapings? Anything stand out? Any matches? Any wrestlers? Overall thoughts? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, a few things. Um, a few weeks out before the event, we were looking at the uh, the – ticket maps for the event it looked like they only had like it looked like they were set up for like roughly a little less than 1500 tickets total at least from the seating chart um something closer to like 13 change and it looked like they still had like a thousand seats available so they were like only pushing three or four hundred you know um paid attendees which i was like dang this is uh this is gonna be like the worst attended strong taping since like that texas show um, you know, the second one they did. Yeah. Uh, but luckily, um, I looked at the map just, you know, the day of, and they had sold a very, very good portion, a lot more than they had previously. And I've got to, you know, suspect that some of the names that they had, you know, added to it, some of the AEW names and some of the impact guys and, you know, some of the match announcements kind of changed, you know, shifted the mood because a lot of people came out. Um, I don't think it was quite as many individuals as the show previously like two years ago because they did do that show in the same venue but i mean i'm just going to give a conservative estimate i think based on just what i saw on the map and what i was looking at there's probably like i don't know 700 people probably roughly that sounds about right yeah so i mean it, it was uh you know it was not a like sellout by any means but, you know it wasn't standing room only there was a lot of tickets available you know we had friends that you know, walked up day of, but still um, a good crowd, um, a lively crowd, uh, a lot of first time guests because they had like these pins that they were giving out to people like come see us if you're a first time uh, New Japan attendee. And they ran out of those pins within like a few minutes and they ha- they didn't, ex- you know, expect to have that many first time, um, you know, goers to the show, especially since this is a market they've been to before. So this crowd seemed like a very different crowd from the New Japan show previously. Like, that seemed more like, you know, your diehard, like, New Japan fans. This seemed more kind of like your general independent wrestling, like, AEW watcher, like, just local attendees. There wasn't as many, like, traveling, uh, you know, type of fans and that sort of thing. But yeah, um, yeah, definitely agree with that. I mean, just based off of the reactions and just yes. how the crowds are watching the, the, the show, you can tell that these weren't people who watch New Japan. These are people who watch Strong because, like, the guys who got the biggest reactions were the AW guys, and uh, it, it was hard for everybody else to get a, a, any kind of reaction. 
for the most part, yeah. Um, unless they were like already previously known on the independence or something of that nature, you know, or someone that was making, you know, noise out there. But uh, there were some surprises. There was cool angles, great matches. Um, you know, uh, again, we're not going to do any spoilers, but I think the person that was most over, which isn't really a surprise considering all the work they did um, in NXT and in the local area, and just kind of the presence they have, you know, with the, the culture, has got to be, uh, I was going to call him Isaiah, Isaiah Swerve Scott, uh, uh, Swerve Strickland um just you know the that whole entire you know whose house Swerve's house chant has always been infectious and in this environment i mean it was huge 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 and so i mean that was a i wouldn't call it surprising but the level of over he was i mean he was in my honest opinion way more over on this night than and there wasn't a close second i mean way more than jay white way more than uh like eddie pro Eddie Kingston might be the close second, but like he was more over than Kingston. He's more over than everybody. It's kind of wild, and I'm I'm sure that'll probably come through in the tapings. Yeah, it was the biggest pop of the night. Like you mentioned, the Who's House, Swerve's House chants are ringing through that building. The, the temperature changed when he came out. It was a huge reaction. The crowd was so into that match. He was facing off against Blake Christian, and that was to me that was my favorite match of the night. Uh, great reactions. It's great match and. Uh, that the energy really picked up with Swerve out there, and that that new theme song, "I Swerve When I Drive," the big pressure. That yeah. that, that new theme is awesome. We were cranking that on, on his way down. You know, we had a pretty cool seats. We were like right there uh, next to the guardrail to the ramp where uh, they are walking out. So, depending on the camera shot, you, you'll probably see us on TV, kind of where we're are sitting at. Yeah, I saw a clip uh, from when he came out to that entrance, and like there's people cranking. And I was like, man, they move pretty good. And I was like, wait a second. That's me. That's your boy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, it was pretty funny. Um, you know, our boy Rock, he, he threw us the fists, you know, which was cool. And uh, the, the only thing is the last hour of the show probably had some of the be best, like, uh, or at least probably the best collection of matches. But I got so tired toward, like, literally after the Swerve match. I was like burned out and there were some really great matches after that. So, you know, four hours for a TV taping. I, for me in that kind of environment, that might be a bit long, um, you know, just being honest, but overall really great event. Um, I, I wish that, or I hope that this, uh, you know, um, exposure kind of, brings some more awareness to some of the like LA dojo and strong staples, but honestly, I don't know that given the, the recent booking on some of these shows, like, like for instance, like, like let's take a guy like Carl Fredericks, for example, you know, he put over Christopher Daniels, he went life and death with Ethan HD. And then he comes out and that's, you know, the last two tapings, he comes out for this show and there's very little reaction. And it's like, well, strong people are already not watching strong. And then, you know, the booking on the show for those that do see him is a little lackluster. Plus it's not like he's like out there making inroads on the independent scene, you know, he's not like having like tearing it up in like Defy or you know Beyond or doing AEW or anything like that. So you know, it was kind of a disheartening to see like people not behind someone like him or some of the other like. Uh, and that's just a for example, but I think he's probably the most glaring, obvious example, just because he's so excellent and there's so much potential there, but the company doesn't seem to be like putting their 
best foot forward with him right now. You know what I mean? And that that was a little disheartening. And I'm hoping when people go to shows like this, it will change their opinions. But I'm not confident it will. I feel like to a certain extent, um, the strong, uh, like at least this strong show that we went to, like seemed to almost like benefit a lot of the outsiders more so than anybody else. Yeah, even with guys like Clark Connors and the, the strong title match with Philly Tom Lawler, I mean, that that was a strong title match that has been coming for a while now. They've started the bill on TV, and there's going to be obviously more bill to come that will eventually lead to this match when it airs on Strong. But, you know, Clark Connors, you know, LA Dojo guy, been there from day one. Philly Tom's been there on Strong from day one. And uh, both of these guys didn't really get a, a huge reaction, and this was, you know, a pretty heated feud, a big title match, and there was not um, a lot of crowd heat for this. Yeah, I mean, there have been other audiences that maybe are more savvy or more familiar with, uh, you know, Tom Lawler, probably from, like, his MLW run or, like, his work in, the like, uh, Northwest Indies, that sort of thing. Um, but, or even out in, like, uh, you know, like California and that sort of thing. But here in Florida, they didn't seem to be as familiar with either of them. Uh, they did play the video package in-house prior to the match, which I think did help to a certain extent. But, um, you know, there's just uh, there were some things that, uh, you know, you could, you could definitely nitpick the show to death. There were some things that I think that they uh, are missing the ball on. Um, one other thing I noticed from the live experience uh the merch they got to they got to work on that merch because the last time um, we went to the New Beginning USA tour, obviously they had the domestic talent with the domestic, uh, you know, merchandise. And I mean, those merch lines were all over the whole entire building. There were lines out the building to be, you know, for merch. Uh, you walked in, and I mean, there was a, a shit ton of merch, but it was all domestic. You know, it was all the uh, Tokon US Global stuff and most of it's not stuff i would wear honestly and i mean i know that i'm not like the biggest merch wearer to begin with but you know i didn't see a bunch of like team filthy shirts or a bunch of uh you know other like strong branded merchandise being sported around the building you know most of it was either going to be like other wrestling shirts or like AEW stuff or new japan domestic stuff so that's something where I think they're missing the ball. They either need to get like better designs or they need to maybe perhaps even sell the domestic merchandise from Japan, which is a big hot ticket item. We've been to so many shows and seen how that stuff really, really moves off the shelf. And when you come to a, uh, you know, a U.S. show and you call yourself New Japan, but you don't have a Tanahashi shirt, you don't have Bullet Club stuff, like it's weird. Yeah, I mean, like you mentioned with the merch line, like I was able to walk up real quick. I grabbed the Strong Style Evolve shirt. I remember, like, yeah, 2020, man, you, you got that merch line. It took forever to uh, get merch. Um, so, yeah, definitely could have had some uh, better selections there. Uh, yeah, having some of the domestic stuff would have been great. Uh, but, yeah, you know, it, it was fine for what it was. Um, you know, it was pretty cool. You know, speaking of, you know, first-time uh, watchers, uh, my fiance Jen, was uh, there with us. This was her first uh, New Japan show that she's been to. She's uh, been to AW, been to FIP, but this was her first uh, New Japan experience. And she was the one that was, like, sitting, like, right by the rail. And uh, she, had, she had a pretty good time, and she was uh, popping the boys. She had her, uh, her one-liners and comments. Uh, coming out and uh you know john skyler as he was uh making his entrance he uh 
you know, it's jacking his job. My lady, I, I had to, uh, you know, stand up. You know, John Juris almost uh, came out of retirement, jumped, jumped the guardrail. Almost had to uh, let let this man know that, you know, I, I could still run it. I can, I could still throw the suplexes. Uh, but, uh, but all serious, it was, it was a lot of fun though. Uh, you know, just kind of jaw jacking with the, the heels on, on the way down uh, the ramp there. And so, yeah, cool experience. And uh, yeah, she had a good time. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. Um, yeah. My girlfriend was with me as well. And uh, this was her, she's been in plenty of shows, but uh, her first new Japan show as well. Although like, you know, I almost feel like we need to put an asterisk on it. Like this is new Japan of America. You know what I mean? Yeah, very, very different experience from even, say, like um, the L.A. Coliseum uh, show that we went to. Or was that the Coliseum? That was at the uh, Torch. Oh, yeah. At the the Torch in L.A. You know, like that sort of show, uh, even though it featured a lot of the same guys, that's sort of a different experience because you still have domestic stars. You still have like, you know, G.O.D. and Ishii and guys like that this show was kind of lacking in that sort of respect. So, I mean, there were a lot of cool things though, to the presentation. I mean, the, um, the actual production value was very high, which is good. Um, my feeling, the lighting was probably, I hope better, um, than it's kind of come across for some of the other like strong tapings that we've seen. Although one thing we, we kind of failed to mention is that the, the production has jumped up a little bit recently on some of these tapings, as opposed to like some of the early ones, you know, yeah, they definitely make strides to get better with yeah the the cameras, the lighting, the production. So overall, Strong keeps getting better. I think every taping they they learn something and adjust. And, you know, and it's kind of hard because you know they're going to different venues and different uh, cities every every tour. So it's not right. the same building all the time. But they're they are trying to learn and adjust. And they're not always using the same crews and same people and same rings and all that stuff. So it's all it's always different every city. But I do feel like they're doing a great job to kind of learn and adjust and uh, make make better uh, calls based off of what they do in the previous tapings. I will say this, though. So, you know, my girlfriend, she uh, dabbles in photography. She has a, a pretty uh, deep knowledge of cameras and that sort of thing. She, like, looked, she, like whispered over me. She's like, the cameras they're using are shitty. And I was like, <laughs> are they? They look like they're probably good. And she's like, no, those are not good cameras. So, like, that's one thing that's got me, like, a little nervous. Um, I couldn't tell you much more beyond that other than just like what the kind of reference she made, but, um, without giving spoilers, the matches were all very good. Uh, there were so many matches though, that it, it, they almost start to blend in for me at this point where I couldn't even hardly like differentiate what was the best or worst match of the night or anything like that, or give grades, even if I wanted to. Um, plus I, I usually like to like, let the live experience be just that and really, rely more on like the video presentation like what made tape for any sort of like real evaluation because you know the the experience you have live is always going to be very different from what is you know what's put to tape so i think it's gonna be interesting to see how these shows come across uh you know once they start to air and everything like that but uh i think people will be happy there was a lot of really great matchups a lot of good matches a lot of fast-paced action the one thing i liked about the show is it was just like match 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 boom 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 there wasn't like a lot of like as soon as match is over the guys cleared the curtain the music for the next you know and the announcements for the next guys were like just happening so it kind of even though it was a a, a lot of matches in a long paced show they still like try to keep it as fresh and fast paced as possible 
Yeah, I thought the pacing was pretty good. Yeah, it was match, match, match. You know, some matches there were post-match promos and some angles, but for the most part, like you mentioned, yeah, it moved along uh, pretty quickly. As far as, like, best matches, like, I still, for me, like, the Swerve versus Blake Christian match was, was probably my match of the night, and I, I thought Jay Lethal and Narita was a really good match. Um, Kingston and Rosser versus uh, Garcia and Yehi. There was so much heat with um, Kingston and Garcia. They were continuing their story from AEW and the few that's happening there with the Jericho um, Appreciation Society and Kingston and who did, Proud and Powerful. Who did, who did Buddy Matthews wrestle? He wrestled Yu Yamura. The Yamura Matthews match is very good. The TJP Dorada match is very good. I mean, just there's a lot of good matches. It's a really good show. Yeah. If if you've never been to a strong taping, they come to the general vicinity of an area to where you can travel to for the price of what you're paying, you're getting an incredible value. I would highly recommend going if you've never been. Yeah. I would say the only match that kind of felt out of place for me was uh Big Damo versus John Skyler. Yeah, I don't even know if that'll make tape or not. That sort of felt like a tryout match, you know? Yeah, I felt, um, felt like that could have been like one of the YouTube um, extra exclusive kind of thing. Yeah, but, uh, you know, I didn't even realize Big Damo was like an NXT. I didn't know who he was, you know? <laughs> so I didn't realize he was like one of those NXT, you know, uh, what were they, Insanity? Insanity, yeah, former uh, Killian Dane. He didn't even look like Killian. He doesn't even look like Killian Dane. <laughs> yeah, the hair is cut and still still a big hairy dude. But yeah, if you used to the hair and the sanity look, you you might not have recognized him. Nice. Well, that's gonna that covers everything online. Do you have any final thoughts? Overall, really fun show. Like you mentioned, if Strong is in your city, you should definitely go and check it out. Looking forward to seeing uh, what everything looks like on TV. Nice. So, uh, speaking of Strong, we'll, we'll keep talking about Strong and uh, transition here into this week's uh, Strong that aired uh, night three of the Rivals Tour. Uh, so, the show opened up. We had a six-man tag. Freddie Ahai, Keita Murray, and the DKC. They defeated the Stray Dog Army of Bear Brown, Bateman, and Mysterioso. Uh, thought this was a uh, nice, fun opener here. Um, interesting that uh, Stray Dog Army uh, ate the loss here against this kind of random pairing. Yeah, I guess so. Um, you know, at the same time, like, that's kind of what Stray Dog Army is there to do. There's a job to be done, and they will do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then following that, we had uh, the finesser, the ultimate finesser, Chris Bay, representing Bullet Club, defeating Blake Christian 10 minutes and 24 seconds. Yeah, uh, very flip-oriented match. A lot of high-flying, fast-paced uh you know, didn't overstay its welcome. 10 minutes, 24 seconds. So, I mean, you know, not overly long, but uh, I felt like both guys kind of got a good chance to shine here. I am um, interested to see how things shake out with Chris Bay in relation to the, like, New Japan Impact working relationship and how that's going to span, you know, with the kind of in ongoing Bull Club storyline and his role in that, especially as the borders kind of lift. Is he going to be one of those guys that they – you know, uh, feel inclined to bring over for like a super junior or something like that? Or, you know, are there other people that they can actually invest into that are not tied to an outside company, you know? So that's, that's something that's like, uh, I kind of got my eye on to see how that all like works itself out, you know? 
Yeah, I feel like Chris Bay would be one of those guys that would try to bring in, let's say, if they can bring people in for best of the Super Juniors. Because if you remember for the Super J Cup, before they even had the, the real official partnership of Impact, he was one of the kind of the first Impact guys that they brought in uh, for that Super J Cup. And he was kind of the first Impact guy that was on strong. And now he's in Bullet Club. Uh, I definitely feel like he would be a guy that if they had a chance, they would bring him over. No, I definitely could see that. My only thinking is like he works for Impact, you know. Right. Is it worth it to invest long term in a guy like that? Maybe we're trying to coerce to come over, you know, down the line or, you know, are, are there other, you know, juniors that are free agents that are working for New Japan Strong or, you know, um, that are free agents out there that we could actually bring over and sign if, if they were inclined, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, Chris Bay gets away here. Win here with the art of finesse cutter on Chris Bay. So, really fun uh, matchup there. And then we had the uh, main event of Buddy Matthews representing the House of Black defeating Ren Narita. Yeah, this match, um, in, in all honesty, I watched all three of these matches at our fan meetup. And I only actually just saw the visuals because they didn't allow us to really like blast the audio because they had music playing so you know i didn't get the full experience but from what i saw this match seemed to rule i mean they were like really going out there and having uh, like a great match in fact um with even without the benefit of the full immersive experience and kind of watching this with the sound off this might be the best buddy matthews match in new japan that we've seen so far and that includes the okada match hmm yeah, this is his uh, first match since the Okada match at uh, Battle in the Valley. Yeah, this was a very uh, hard-hitting matchup here between uh, both these guys. And was Has he not had any other strong matches? No, this is, this is his first strong since that uh, that November match. Oh, man. I guess just because we're seeing him on AEW, I felt like he wrestled. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like this better than the Okada match. <laughs> yeah, I'd probably have to go back and watch the Okada match. This was definitely more hard-hitting. Uh, a little bit of a faster pace. Uh, but, yeah, really good stuff here. Uh, Narita's looking great in all his matches that he's been having with guys like this. And it seems like uh, Matthews, maybe he's, like, feuding or maybe starting a feud with the L.A. Dojo because he, he beats uh, Narita here. And then on the strong tapings that we attended, he faced off against Shimura. So taking on uh, some of these uh, L.A. Dojo um, excursion young line guys. So interesting to see where direction know. there there is. It makes sense to me because, I mean, Buddy Matthews, you know, he likes to steal from the best guys out there. He stole, you know, a lot of his look and his move set from Kenny Omega. Made sense. And then who was the last guy that, like, feuded with the LA Dojo? Will Ospreay. Buddy Matthews just going to steal his shit, too. Makes sense to me. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Buddy, he gets to win here with the uh, Murphy's Law, gets the pin, and gets his uh, first victory no. in New Japan. No, in all seriousness, though, like, he's – phenomenal this match ruled um definitely big recommend so then uh next week on night four of the rivals tour we're gonna have a main event uh the nation match with tom lawler gerald nelson and royce isaac sarah Krells, and dan limelight's so all team filthy taking on fred roster clark connors taylor rust adrian quest and the dkc our good friend rocky romero will be going one-on-one -on -one with black tiger and then the show open up with red deaf daniel garcia the sports entertainer taking on yuya Uemura. nice that's definitely one worth checking out especially since uh 
you know, chronologically, this occurred before what we saw Sunday. So maybe that will fill in some gaps that we're not privy to storyline wise. Right. We were, we were in the future. <laughs> we were ahead. <laughs> All right. Let's uh, shift gears here to uh, domestic New Japan, New Japan proper for the New Japan Cup. So we had a few nights of tournament action here since the last time we recorded. Um, so I think we should just do the same thing that we did last time. Maybe talk about. Some of the undercard stuff that's been happening as a whole, and then we can focus in on the tournament matchups. Okay. Well, I mean, the major story that everyone's kind of been talking about is the amalgamation of the Gorillas of Destiny, that's Tamatonga and Tengaloa, as well as Master Heater Jado into uh, maybe Hontai, maybe a loose alliance with Hontai. It's hard to say exactly what it's leading to. But, um, you know, night after night, they've been wrestling against different combinations of the Bullet Club. In most cases, some of the more classic members like Chase Owens, Fale, Gato, and then maybe some other guys like, uh, you know, Phantasmo and uh, Ishimori. Usually a, a group of them. They haven't really been facing off too much with House of Torture. I think a little bit, Yujiro. Um, with that being said, though, they've kind of found themselves in a spot where um, they've started to either get rescued or come to the save. Uh, at first, it was uh, the team members of six or nine, and we started to see like a loose affiliation and kind of acceptance between Tamatonga and um, uh, Taguchi, which was, you know, as weird as that sounds, it kind of worked because night after night, G.O.D. are going out there as hot, fiery baby faces, you know, jumping, you know, getting the jump on uh, Bullet Club or vice versa, and, you know, fighting from underneath and, doing hot tags and, you know, just getting super fired up. And it, for whatever reason, it is working. We kind of saw the genesis of this during the uh, G1 this past year, especially with Tamatanga. And it's really, really getting over with the live audiences and then kind of pairing them with some of the Hantai guys, with them kind of giving them their seal of approval as well. It's sort of working out. And then even on the most recent show, um, at the end of the match, G.O.D. and, and uh, 6 or 9, they lost to the Bull Club through nefarious means, and they were getting jumped. And then none other than Hiroshi Tanahashi came out, made the save, cleared house, and then kind of left G.O.D. standing there with Tanahashi. And, you know, him and Tamatonga, like, shook hands. And, I mean, you know, um, Kevin Kelly made it very clear. He's like, this doesn't mean they're best friends. doesn't mean they're going to go out, like, have cream barbecue and, you know, all that. But... For the time being, you know, they have some sort of understanding where there is, you know, some peace between them, which is, you know, it's interesting because the crowd's eating it up. Yeah, the crowd, the crowd has been loving it, especially that Cork and Hall crowd that we got. I believe that, well, yeah, night 11, March 18th. Uh, it was a huge Corkin crowd. It was like over a thousand people in the biggest Corkins um, since the, the pandemics happened and. You had some fans in there who were kind of breaking the rules and who were chanting along at certain points and gasping loud and really getting into the show. And especially during that match with um, the Bullet Club match with, uh, I think it was, yeah, Bad Luck Fale, ELP, and Ishimori against Tamatonga and Jado. The crowd was really fired up for that, especially like when Jado and Gato, or, or just when Jado was in there and eventually, you know, when Gato post match kind of came out, you know. The crowd was really fired up with Jado kind of making his comeback on these guys, and even when Tama and Tank Lower were getting fired up. So, yeah, it seems like the crowd is really in, like you mentioned, into this you know new God face turn 
You know, they, they did the favor first. They saved uh, Wato and Taguchi from a beatdown because ELP and Ishimori have their eyes set on the junior tag title. So these guys have been facing off against each other as well and under cards. And there was a, a big attack on 6 or 9 after one night. And then G.O.D. made a save. Then the next night, 6 or 9 made the favor, returned the favor, and they kind of shook hands. And then after that, they've been teaming together in 10-man tags against the Bullet Club. And like you mentioned, uh, Tanahashi made a save on the most recent show. And then, you know, Tama tweeted out a picture of him shaking Gucci's hand, and he said, Hantai. So it definitely seems like, you know, that's where he's trying to at least make his allegiance, that he is a part of the, the New Japan home team, that he's going to represent Hantai. I know there's a lot of questions on whether or not, like, G.O.D., was going to be its own faction, or is it was going to be a Bullet Club splinter, but it seems like it's very clear they are 100% out of Bullet Club, and it seems like they're going to just join the, the New Japan team, the Hantai unit. Well, I'm not completely uh, convinced that that's exactly what's going on, because on the website, they did sort of create a subunit for just the G.O.D. guys as of yet, so... It, that kind of remains to be seen. I mean, we might get a situation where they do form their own faction. Um, I think they might even be like playing around with that idea, you know, seeing how they kind of come across live to the audience with some of the other Hantai guys. And who knows? Maybe it could lead to a new faction, which I think is something that people are always asking about. When will there be a new faction? Yada, yada, yada. And I mean, you know, uh, for my money, if you're going to... Um, split off Tamatonga and try to make money off of him and maybe potentially push him as a top guy, uh, is he going to have more success as just a, another faceless member of Hontai or as the leader of some sort of group? I think, you know, the obvious answer is, you know, being the head of a group in New Japan carries a lot of weight, and uh, especially when it comes to booking. So um, hopefully that is the case. I mean, I don't know. I think that's more interesting anyways than, you know, them just kind of being you know, aligned with, like, Kojima and, you know, those guys. So, I don't know. Yeah, either way, it's just refreshing with them as babyfaces now. It opens up the door for some new matchups and some interesting things that they could do with those guys. Um, so, yeah, it's cool to see that that working out so far. And also, like I mentioned, uh, you know, Bull Cup's used tag teams have been tar- targeting um, the champs, Team 6 or 9, um, and then also on the undercard, under I mean, a lot of it's been just kind of tournament preview matches, and then I think it's kind of a lot of just like a random matches from guys who are not in the tournament. I think the main storyline stuff has been the Bullet Club stuff, the Junior Tag stuff. Uh, it looks like at the, the last show there was a angle. It seemed like we might be getting United Empire challenging for the tag team titles. Uh, Hanare, right. Cobb, and uh, Ocon, they picked up a victory over um, some of the tag champs. Um, see if I can find that the, match. The, the only other really ongoing feud that's kind of playing out is we're still seeing a lot of interaction between Show and Desperado. So, I mean, it's become very clear. You know, it was even clear last week, but it's become even more so that Show's the next challenger for Desperado's junior title. So, yeah. So the 21st, uh, Hanare, Okan, Cobb, they defeated Goto, Yoshihashi, and Hanma. And then uh, post-match, they were kind of jaw-jacking. Kevin Kelly was hinting maybe these guys could do Freebird rules if they were to challenge for the titles and win them. So it does, it does seem that at some point, maybe at the, the big April show, we're going to get some kind of United Empire team against uh, Bishamon. Yeah, um, which... 
you know, we'll get there when we get there. But I mean, I think that's uh, something we've been talking about for quite a while. We're finally getting it. Right. I mean, we've talked about how dominant the United Empire has been of the team, especially initially Cobb and Ocon and then with uh, Ocon and Hanare at one point. Um, so both those units have been, those teams have been uh, felt pretty strong, even in multi-man matches. I feel like the United Empire, uh, all four guys together have been booked pretty strong as well. So they've been a dominant unit. I'm interested to see if, which, how, which pairing they're going to go with, but it's going to be some fresh blood, a new team, new, new, new challengers. Nice. Well, let's get into uh, New Japan Cup proper action. So, yeah, let's start with uh, night 10, March 17th. So, semi-main event, first uh, New Japan Cup match of the night. We had Zack Sabre Jr. defeating the Great Ocon, 20 minutes and 3 seconds. Yeah, so if you listened to um, our preview episode for the New Japan Cup, you know, uh, this was the, the match that kind of broke the, the bracket that I laid out during that episode, you know, um, I had Great Okan going all the way through <laughs> um, to face Okada uh, at the next uh, title challenge in April, which uh, looking at the tournament now seems kind of crazy. Uh, but, you know, given the, the history of the New Japan Cup, that pick didn't really seem that far out of left field. You take a look at the way that some of these tournaments have, have uh, played out, and they've always played out with upsets and, you know, up-and-comers and, you know, older talents and things like that. But during this whole entire first round or, you know, these first three rounds, they went completely chalk. And because of that, we saw Zack Sabre Jr. prevail over Great Ocon here, 20 minutes, uh, very similar match to the one that they had, maybe a little bit, a, a tad bit longer, but similar to the really good match that they had in the uh, G1 this past year. Um, I liked what I saw here. I liked the story they told, the work from both guys. But I kind of knew going into it, based on the fact that Okan was like eating pinfalls in, in multi-man tags, and Zach has not only just had good matches, but he himself has been putting in excellent work and like kind of worked on his physique and been even like debuting a lot of new moves during this tournament. I was like, fuck, he's gonna like probably eat up Okan and. <laughs> <laughs> Um, now he didn't exactly eat up Ocon. I, I think that they tried to still keep Ocon strong by giving him a lot of offense. Um, and he kind of seemed to a certain extent, maybe even a, a little bit more dominant, but they did the exact same finish with Zach catching him in the arm bar, stretching it out from a standing position where Ocon tried to maybe power bomb him. And, you know, he, he taps out almost immediately. So very reminiscent of what we saw of them in the, um, G1 this past year. And Zack Sabre, you know, gets past O'Connor, moves on to the, you know, the fourth round. Yeah, like we we talked about um, off air as far as like the booking and a lot of this being chalk. It was like, you know, like you mentioned previous years in the Japan Cup, it seemed like you had more upsets. It was about building new guys um, and you'd get to a finals and it necessarily wouldn't be, you know, the, the greatest pairing in the world. You know, it might be a Shibata Fale kind of situation there and you're trying to build somebody uh, based off of the, the finals and the tournament. But here, they're trying to get the biggest stars in the biggest positions in these quarter and semifinals and eventually in the finals. So we have the, the bigger, more established guys winning, and we got some interesting um, you know, quarterfinals, semifinals that happened uh, in this past show. And yeah, the Sabre-Ocon match was really, really good. I, I think I like the G1 match a little bit more, but 
essentially yeah, like, me too. Like, like you mentioned, pretty similar. A lot of grappling. Um, you know, Okan, you know, technical wrestler award of the Tokyo Sports uh twenty twenty, uh twenty twenty one. And so uh, taking on against, you know, the, the Brian Danielson uh, award runner up here. So very technical match, a lot of grappling, a lot of whole exchanges. Uh, the Kind of the key um, downfall for Ocon in this match is he, he had a submission on Sabre and Sabre was on the verge of passing out. And instead of just going for the ref stoppage or submission, he let go, hit the eliminator, uh, or tried to hit the eliminator, but Sabre was able to uh, catch him in the armbar, like you mentioned. And then it was the same exact finish from the G1. Ocon tried to power out, and then Sabre dropped his weight, extended that arm, got the quick tap out there, and Sabre advanced. Nice. Well, then that takes us to the main event of the evening where we saw Will Ospreay defeat Sonata 16 minutes and 56 seconds and uh this was a good match but a match that was full of controversy and online discourse yeah so i guess you know the, the big thing everybody's talking about here is uh the injury that sonata suffered so sonata suffered a fractured left orbital bone in this matchup with will osprey he's set to miss at least the the rest of the new japan cup tour there isn't a uh, current timetable on when He'll be returning to the ring, and so in the, in the match here, uh, Osprey was going for standing shooting star. It seemed like they were trying to do um, Sonata getting the knees up at some point, but it looked like um, Osprey's knee came right down on the the left side of Sonata's face. Yes, that's exactly what happened. Um, the way you laid it out, uh, this is something where there's been a lot of discussion on as to what occurred how this occurred who's at fault who's not at fault what the company should do what the company shouldn't do yada 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 um you know i'm gonna give you my take on it as someone that's um you know done uh, a, a little bit of wrestling but also you know studied it for quite a while um sonata's the guy that's the base he's the one that's laying on the ground taking the move and just like you mentioned jeremy he puts his knees up so one of two things was either happening there either they had planned the spot where he's supposed to get the knees up and counter the move or there was some sort of miscommunication and he thought he was supposed to do that and he wasn't um one thing i can tell you though is i've heard a lot of people say sonata like fidgeted or got out of place or he wasn't in the right position that's bullshit how can you be in a wrong or right position for this for the standing shooting star press, he's prone laying on the ground. Did you see that man turn? I I did think I saw him move a little bit, but not enough to where it would be weird, though. I can tell you how he moved. He put his knees up. That's all he did. I, I went back and rewatched this just to be sure because I've heard different versions of the story. And, you know, the, the unfortunate thing is, like, there were gifts of this on Twitter, but, you know. Bushi Road and TV Asai, they pull those down. So, you, can't, you know, it's not even easy to like go back and rewatch it. But I found uh, a GIF online and I rewatched it many, many times. This guy didn't move. Now, you know, who did inadvertently land their knee into someone's face? It was Will Ospreay. Now, do, do, you know, there's people on both sides of the argument. Some people saying, like, oh, Will is reckless and all that. Um, I wouldn't say he was reckless because, I mean, you kind of need to have a long-standing um, 
history of botches and you know risking people's health and putting people in jeopardy and i don't think that that's something that's descriptive of will osprey at all so i think some of the uh bad faith arguments that are out there people calling for will to be kind of like you know disciplined or you know canceled or whatever that's a little far-fetched you know it it's wrestling and accidents happen at the same time i think we also should be willing to say who was at fault will osprey was at fault 100 million thousand percent will osprey fucked up you and it comes down to the fact that he had a man laying there prone and he didn't throw himself up to do the standing shooting star press from an angle that was safe to land it where he is opposite the guy's body he landed you know perpendicular so that they're basically in like almost a 69 position and he brought his knees down on the dude's face um was it probably just a mistiming or a miscalculation or a misjudgment sure like did he fuck up yes i think we should be willing to say he fucked up he did uh do i think he should be like thrown out of wrestling or be labeled dangerous like no there's plenty of wrestlers that have like messed up and, and, and hurt guys on accident it's just that's what it is but i will say something that was really not good okay and i rarely do this i was listening to wrestling observer uh radio this past or newsletter or um what is it wrestling observer radio radio yeah and i heard dave Meltzer say that sonata was at fault for getting his own orbital bone broken because will you know was in the right position and sonata moved that's bullshit. that didn't happen that's you know as you know the uh conservatives like to say fake news <laughs> <laughs> i don't think that that is professional or um good to blame the person that got their orbital bone broken by somebody else for their injury i don't like that at all and i think that's some bullshit because he is a fanboy of will osprey and then um he gave like a play-by-play of how he thought it went down and it's very clear that i think this is just my opinion this is where i think it is actually super fucked up he said that um sonata moved causing will to to accidentally uh you know hurt him but then will had the wherewithal to save the match and to carry sonata through the rest of the match um even though red shoes and sonata were fucking it up to me if you just want my honest opinion i'm i i guess i'm kind of going into the realm of speculation here it sounds like someone fed him this story i wonder who could have possibly spoke to dave Meltzer and fed him the story about how red shoes and sonata were at fault that's all i'm gonna say yeah i don't like that at all i don't i don't like the idea and maybe it wasn't will but it, to me that's what it sounds if you're putting two and two together it sounds like will went to dave and he's like here's the account of what happened and then he put himself over and buried the guy that he hurt i i don't know that shit doesn't sit right with me and i don't think that dave going on the air and regurgitating that story is professional at all i don't like that yeah it, it seems definitely kind of hard to, to blame sonata here in, in this situation i mean you know like you mentioned with osprey we've seen him do that standing shooting star thousands of times has never hurt anybody before it definitely seems like yeah there was some kind of miscommunications and i thought he was supposed to get the knees up to block the move and also osprey thought he was hitting the move and yeah it was I don't even know if that's the case. I think he probably was intended to land on the knees, probably. Yeah. And was just out of position. Yeah, yeah. Came down that weird angle right on Sonata's face, and yeah, got his orbital bone broke. And then 
that led into the, the end of the match. You know, credit to Sonata. You know, he still he, he got up and continued the match because after that he went up, went for the uh, the moon salt, uh, which he missed, and then um, Osprey hit the hitting blade for a near fall, and then he started firing off elbows and strikes to the head. Um, and it, it took a while for uh, Red Shoes to uh, finally uh, call for the ref stoppage there. Yeah, and th- that was something too. Um, when I was listening to Davis, he basically said that. From the orbital bone break, that Sonata was knocked completely unconscious and that he was out for the rest of the match and that Will had to improvise the finish and go to a ref stoppage finish, which I think there might be some truth to that. But like anyone who watched the match clearly saw that this guy was not knocked unconscious. He, like you said, got up, did moves. You know, he did an over under spot. He did a, a, a freaking moonsault. <laughs> you know, he did a, a skull's end. These are not things that someone who is knocked out cold is able to do running right. around the ring, <laughs> coming off the top rope. Fuck out of here with that noise. Yeah. I mean, you know? obviously his eye and that side of the face was starting to swell up really bad, but he was moving fine and went up. Like I said, hit, hit the moonsault. Um, you know, he was doing the rest of the match and. Maybe the, the the plan finish was was just a ref stoppage. You know they have been getting over Will strikes and the power of the hidden blade and his elbows and forearms. So maybe that was just a planned finish, or maybe it was a thing where it's not. I was like, all right, my face is starting to hurt a lot more now. It's just right um, improvising. You know, do do a ref stoppage finish, hit me with elbows, um, and the move that didn't get sent to Red Shoes right away. And that's why Red Shoes was kind of stalling on that call. But I, I yeah, I think. I think all of that is plausible. Um, like you said, that's kind of been Will's story is them getting over his strikes. He's, he hasn't finished anybody with the uh, Stormbreaker. It's all been, you know, elbow shots. So it would kind of make sense. But I could also see if where they needed to go to a uh, improvised finish for the sake of the injury. That, w- that makes sense, too. Um, what I didn't think was great was the portrayal of Red Shoes at the end where, you know, Will is landing an ungodly amount of, ground and pound elbow, you know, strikes to the side of Sonata's head. And he's just not covering up. He's not defending intelligently. He's just taking them, taking them, taking them, taking them. And like, you know, Red Shoes is like trying to get Will off of him, you know, like literally trying to pull him off. But like in a real fight, when the referee's trying to pull someone off the fighter, that means the, the other fighter is done and that's the end of the match. But like Will, as a character, is not relenting because he's not ringing the bell and he's clearly not ending the match. And so from Will's perspective, he's like, you just want to give this guy uh, a time to check on him and to give him a breather when I've got him out of here, just end the match, which I think actually from a kayfabe standpoint makes sense, but it made Red Shoes look incompetent because they went through this diatribe like two times before the final stanza where he finally, finally called for the bell. And even my girlfriend watching it, she's like, man, Red Shoes is like doing a piss poor job right now (laughs) you know and and it's hard to tell this was the intended story because they i think they use that story uh in the next coming uh tournament match for will osprey plays into the storyline and maybe that was just them playing off of it or perhaps it was intended to be played out this way you know uh, that's something we don't really know but um you know, those are my thoughts on the match. I thought the match was pretty good. I, I saw a lot. I think the praise for it was a little higher than I would have given it. But overall, I thought the match was good. You know, it was unfortunate what happened to Sonata. Um, I didn't love the finish, but I do like ref stoppages in wrestling. I think they're, they need to be done more often. But I just didn't like the way they did this one. 
Yeah, I thought a lot of people were pretty high on this match and, and their opinions. I mean, I was like three and a half on, on this yeah. match. I saw a lot of four, four and a quarter, and, and that's fine if you like it that much. But I know for me, I just felt like these guys have had way better matches. I felt like it was just getting part of the match was kind of slow. And, and then with right. the contrived uh, finish and the, the shooting star uh, botch, like it, it was just kind of a hot mess towards the end there. So obviously, you know, good stuff uh, in between all that, but yeah, it's just um, some problems there for me where I was more in a three and a half range. Yeah, I'm probably right there with you. Maybe a little higher, but yeah, I I totally agree. So then that will take us to uh, night eleven, March eighteenth, from Cork and Hall. This is the show I was talking about where we had the that bigger Cork and crowd, and uh, people were cheering a little bit and kind of getting kind of rowdy here. Um, so the semi-main event, first tournament matchup, we had the Dragon Shingo Takagi. Defeating the crown jewel, Chase Owen, 16 minutes and 41 seconds. Yeah, um, like you said, this crowd was uh, getting a little rowdy. This was um, the first time, well, you know, one thing we do need to mention, this was the largest uh, post-COVID attended crowd audience at a Cork and Hall show, um, like I said, since the pandemic started. That's because they uh, have lifted some of the mandates. Like, there's still an attendance cap but it's much higher than it was before. And you could really tell, I mean, the energy of the audience this night was awesome. I mean, even better than the subsequent nights on this tour. This was the first time in a long time where it felt like an actual New Japan audience, um, which I thought was really, like, invigorating. And even though we're not going, you know, match by match on the undercard, if there were one show during this uh, tournament that I would recommend just watching just for the sake of enjoyment. This was a good show to watch because the crowd was just into everything that was happening, all the angles. Uh, and then, and then, you know, the top of the card as well, like the the audience was really with it this night, which was good. But um, Shingo versus Chase Owens, pretty good match. I mean, um, you know, Chase Owens is a really good hand. We kind of know what to expect out of him. We've seen him, uh, you know, performed pretty well in this past year's G1. And he, you know, obviously had a, a um, reputation for being a good worker prior to that. And he kind of lived up to that bill here against Shingo. I, I wouldn't call this like a blow away match, but it told an important story where he, where Chase is uh, really working over the neck of Shingo and kind of working the injury. And we've seen in the past where Shingo's very good at, you know, selling uh, a body part and, you know, making that kind of, uh, ailment a detriment to himself and he sells the shit out of it to make the other guy look plausible as potential you know upset uh even if like for instance in this case it's you know chase owens against shingo i mean it's still the new japan cup upsets happen we've seen chase owens beat hiroshi tanahashi in cork and hall before so it's not the most unbelievable idea in the world that he could maybe get one over on shingo especially with the kind of like reinvigoration of the bull club lately and he went out there and tried his damnedest to do just that and soften up Shingo for the uh, package pile driver. But alas, it was, uh, you know, not enough to overcome Shingo. Shingo got him up for the uh, last of the dragon. One, two, three. And uh, 16 minutes, Shingo goes on. Yeah, this match had, was better than it had any right to be. And I, I know that we, you know, we've supported Chase Owens before his in-ring work. But, you know, at the end of the day, it, it's Chase Owens and it's Shingo Takagi. Um, but I thought this was a really good matchup here, and there was a story going into this on on the backstage promos the uh, night before Shingo had mentioned that he's going to beat Chase Owens in five minutes. 
Uh, <laughs> and so Chaser got pissed until like, the next night when they had the preview match, like he had jumped Shingo, laid him out with the package pile driver, and was you know all oh, five minutes. I'm I'm going to be the one that's going to beat you in five minutes. So then going into the match, you know Kevin uh, Kelly was keeping track of the first five minutes to see if there's going to be a finish, and uh, you know Chase was was bringing it to Shingo, and it went on obviously a lot longer than uh, five minutes. So. Um, you know, Chase Owens kind of proved his his worth here a little bit and proved that he can he can hang with the former heavyweight champion. They went um, almost 16 minutes or well, it went over 16, 1641. Um, so yeah, Chase went out there, got to prove that he he can hang with Shingo, and it wasn't just you know the quick five minute squash that uh, Shingo was anticipating. Like he mentioned, really working on the neck of Shingo and kind of you know, finding that chink in the armor and really breaking him down. Um, and near package pile driver, like you mentioned, and he was, he, that's what he mentioned on commentary too. He's like, you know, I've, I've beaten uh, Tanahashi. Uh, Chase is calling himself a, a legend killer because he's beat, been beating a lot of um, of New Japan dads and a lot of the older guys with the package pile driver. And so he's like, I'm the legend killer. I'm gonna I'm gonna beat Shingo next. And so yeah, he, he tried his hardest, but yeah, Shingo's able to escape that package pile driver, get him up for the uh, last of the dragon, and get the win here. Nice. So then that will take us to the main event with Hiromu Takahashi, the ticking time bomb, defeating the never open weight champ, Evil, 15 minutes and 52 seconds. Yeah, uh, another match where I was wrong on my predictions and my bracket, and I'm very glad to be so. (laughs) (laughs) Because, um, you know, there's been a really awesome story going throughout this tournament with Hiromu just kind of being this underdog you know, one of the top, like, uh, juniors, but a guy that can hang with the heavyweights. And he's been getting these, uh, you know, unbelievable roll-up victories night after night. And he makes it to the third round. And, I mean, uh, Evil's the openweight champion. He's, like, one of the leaders or sub-leaders of House of Torture slash Bullet Club. And, you know, he's just kind of been the thorn in everyone's side for the past two years, ever since his uh, original victory in the New Japan Cup a couple years back. And, you know, we've seen these two guys, you know, lots and lots and lots of history between Hiromu and Evil going, you know, not just back to their LIJ days, but even prior to that, like as Young Lions coming up in the same class uh, of the dojo, best friends in real life. You know, we saw where when Hiromu was out with the broken neck, Evil was always bringing out his jacket, his cat, his memorabilia to kind of keep him in memory uh, until he made his return. And You know, we saw how things blew up between the two of them when Evil turned his back on LIJ, culminating in a title match between the two of them, Um, you know, was that uh, two years ago, I guess, at this point? And um, this was kind of the rematch of that. And I got to tell you, uh, Jeremy, I love this match. Bro, I I love this match, too. (laughs) I don't know what it is about Hiromu and Evil. They have magic together. I love that. That was that was Evil's best tile defense two years ago. Was against Hiromu. I believe that was Sengoku Lord. Um, yeah. And here again, this was a, a really good Evil match with Hiromu. And like you mentioned, that that Cork and Hall crowd, they were into it. There was magic in the air, and there was just like so much going for this match. And I don't know what it is, but the House of Torture stuff works with the Evil Hiromu matches. Well, here's the thing. Um couple things. So this was a little bit of a stripped down version of an evil match. So, I mean, you definitely had the bullshit and the chicanery and the dick togoism, but you didn't also have show and you didn't also have Ujiro. You didn't also have everything else that goes along with that. You know what I mean? Right. So it was a little bit scaled back, 
But also there is the fact that Hiromu and Evil, like I mentioned, behind the scenes, they're best friends in real life. And we've seen throughout the years, you know, guys that are good friends will do way more to put each other over. They'll hit each other harder. They, they just go at a different pace. Plus, like all the years of familiarity, teaming together, wrestling against one another, coming up together in the dojo. There's just a lot of synergy and chemistry between these two. And beyond that, the story itself was just incredible. I mean, evil always comes up on top in most cases. He's very protected, uh, especially, you know, even in cases where he should lose because he's so protected by his stable and their cheating ways. And then you got Hiromu, who's a junior, who's an underdog, who's a guy that, you know, maybe shouldn't be being evil from a kayfabe stance. And, you know, on the other side of this is a Shingo dream match looming that most people thought would never and could never happen. And, like, people are just in that Cork and Hall crowd are just living and breathing with the idea that Hiromu might be able to get past evil. So, you know, in a vacuum, every single bit of cheating that evil did really mattered the crowd reacted to it every single time Hiromu got a hope spot or fired up spot it worked you know it, it this is the I, this is what you know we've talked about the difference between bad heat with cheating and good heat with cheating and this was an example in a vacuum of how the house torture stuff could work if done correctly we've said that many many times uh you know they just scaled it back a little bit, picked their spots better, did it when it meant something and had the right opponent for it to actually garner sympathy and reaction for. And it just worked on a high level. Plus the work rate was just evil, bumped his ass off, sold his ass off. It was, it was incredible. Yeah. It started off really hot with uh Hiromu attacking evil uh, during the entrance and then kind of Brawling and then yeah, it's good stuff um, in the ring. Like you mentioned every Harumu near fall. It was a, a time bomb one uh, near fall that uh, the whole crowd and I, everybody bit on there. That was a great near fall and um, like we saw in a Suzuki match, there was some some roll a lot of roll ups um, and some near falls there. There was one roll up where Harumu had evil beat, but Dick Togo had distracted the referee. Uh, but then that led into the finish where Harumu. Got up and he ended up pushing Evil into Dick Togo, Falcon Togo into the guardrail, and he hit Evil with the Everything Is Evil STO and got the win. Yeah, and that was something that um, was very, very, very shocking to me because like Hiromu got so many near falls and I was biting on all of them and I was just like hoping and praying he'd win. Like this was a match that had me marking out. I was like in li- in the living room, like pacing around, like come on, like. Let's do this motherfucker, you know? And then um, when he hit him with the everything's evil, that was really cool and I marked out, but I had no expectation that evil would stay down for the one, two, three. I can't think of too many times ever in my entire experience of watching wrestling where anybody got hit with their own finishing maneuver by an opponent who didn't also use that move as their finisher and then take the one, two, three loss. Yeah, uh, we've seen a we've seen a lot of times where people steal the move and get near falls from it, but I've never seen someone that I can remember steal a finisher and beat that guy with his finisher. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure it's probably happened, but I can't recall it either. And that was so cool, was it, especially in New Japan. I feel like we do see a lot of in big matches guys stealing each other's finishers, but it always leads to a near fall. 
So when he hit right. him, when he hit him with the everything is evil, I'm like, oh, it's gonna be a cool near fall spot. One, two, three. I was like, what? <laughs> he beat him. Oh, yeah, I, so I, awesome. I was so happy, especially too, because if you listen back to the prediction show, Shinga Hiromi was something that I predicted, and you and yeah. you and Chris were like, no, that's not not gonna. You you were kind of swaying yeah. away from that. I'm like, I don't know. You were Mark. You're you're looking <laughs> like a Mark. And apparently, so is Gato. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, we, we need some uh, good matches in this tournament. Fresh matchups, you know, kind of a dream matchup here. Why not? And so, yeah, I was very excited with uh, Shingo Hiromu uh, getting the win here on this night, leading to that Shingo Hiromu matchup. And yeah, a really fun uh, main event here. And also, like I was uh, also looked at my prediction too, is the, the fact that Hiromu could potentially now challenge for the Never Open Weight title. We got a big show yeah. coming up in April. Um, so we'll see if this win will lead to uh, never open with towel shot or just more open weight matches for Hiromu this year. So before we talk about the rest of the tournament, let's just do a quick rundown. So that was the end of the third round. We're going into the fourth round, which has concluded. We're going to cover those matches. Um, but at this point, we're at the quarterfinals. Look at this quarterfinal lineup. You got Tetsuya Naito versus Jeff Cobb. Kazushko Kata versus Shima. And then on the other side of the bracket, you got Zack Sabre Jr. versus Will Ospreay and Shingo Takagi versus Hiromu Takahashi. Believably, at this point, any of those eight guys, if they were to go through, could easily be deemed the winner of the New Japan Cup and be a challenger for Okada, except for himself, of course. They have never, and I defy you, whoever you are, listener, go look at the brackets. For every single New Japan Cup in history, they've never had a semifinal that, w- that was filled with this many stars, let alone a quarterfinal of the tournament. Um, you know, there were a lot of complaints about the booking of the early part of the tournament, and I think some of that's still rightfully so. But the, the drawback when you don't have, you know, the drawback of not having any um, major matches in the early parts of the tournament and the other drawback of not you know, there not being a lot of upsets, that is kind of balanced out and countered out by the fact that we got eight superstars in dream matches in major, you know, aligned matches going into the last three rounds of the tournament, which is like, I don't want to say it completely makes up for it, but dude, it's really, I mean, like when I saw this, I was like fucking fired up. I'm like, oh my God, look at, look at how amazing, like, now, my argument would be they could have just done a tournament with just these guys. I would have been happy. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, with that being said, like, dude, what were you thinking when you saw this lineup of, of you know, the quarterfinals, these, you know, last eight gentlemen? Yeah, I was very excited because, uh, I mean, this tournament, it's been, you know, it's been kind of a sludge on some nights to watch. And especially towards the beginning part, you, you had a lot of guys that, Maybe shouldn't have been in the tournament. You know, it was, um, you know, it just kind of was kind of slow, and we weren't getting a ton of uh, great matchups. And once, so now we're, you know, as we got closer and closer to the quarters, we're getting better matchups. And now, get to these quarters, it's like, man, you know, Naito Kawa was all that Wrestle Kingdom. That was a great matchup. Okada and Shima, who would have thought that we would have gotten that matchup? Uh, Shingo Hiromu, who would have thought we would have gotten that? Um, and then Osprey and um, Saber, those guys. They can, you know, sleepwalk into four and three quarter, five star any day with their chemistry and history. So looking at that, it was like, man, this is a, a stacked quarterfinal. We're going to get um, a series 
of great matches between the quarters, semi, and finals. And like you mentioned, any one of these eight guys could realistically win, go all the way through, and win the whole tournament. Um, all these guys have had title matches in the past, uh, former champions, former tournament winners. Uh, there's a, such a stacked quarterfinal and so many different possibilities um, for potential rematches and first-time matchups that was uh, just really cool to see. One thing, too, that I started to think about is, like, um, you know, at this point, you have so many major matches that they're doing, and it's a New Japan Cup, so it's like normally they hold these off for, like, later in the year, G1, things like that. It really got my the wheels like in my brain kind of turning where I'm like, why are they blowing all this stuff off? Now, there is the part where it's like, okay, some of the restrictions are being lifted. Some of the numbers of attendance and interest have been down. We need to do something big. So there is that part to it. So that makes sense to me where I'm like, okay, they're really trying to do something really great, really enticing and exciting at the end. At the same time, could this be an indication that they know that there's a possibility of travel restrictions being lifted entirely for later in the year, meaning outsiders possibly coming in. And that would mean like blowing off some of these bigger matches now isn't so much of a uh, setback. If hypothetically we got guys coming in for the G1 later in the year, that kind of negate them even, you know, doing these matches right now. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. And, you know, we've already been seeing some athletes come in uh, to Japan for other sports, um, for some foreigners. So maybe for New Japan, it's going to be, yeah, maybe come G1 season or maybe even uh, Best Super Juniors, which is going to be in May again. Maybe they, they have the go-ahead that they're going to be able to bring in some foreigners. Like, I think it makes total sense. All right, let's. Blow off some of these uh, bigger matchups now. Some do some big rematches now because come the second half of the year, we're gonna right. we can bring in John Moxley. We can bring in Brian Danielson. Uh, we can bring in uh, we can bring back Lance Archer. We can we can bring in all these AEW guys and independent guys that want to work uh, New Japan. We can bring in the strong guys. We can bring in Chris Dickinson, Filthy Tom Lawler. Uh, Fred Rosser, we can we can bring in um, U.S. Indie darling Suzuki. Yeah, <laughs> bring him in from the states. You know, see if we can get some dates on him. Uh, yeah, the, the L.A. Dojo guys, like just between strong AEW and independent guys, there are so many guys that they and Impact guys. Which, you know, between all the people that New Japan's been working with, um, there's so many guys that they could bring in for Super Juniors and G1 and shows. Uh, for the second half of the year, so it does now, seem now, like there's hope. Now, does that them doing these big matches right now? Does that necessarily mean that's exactly what's happening? No, it doesn't. Um, but in the past, the prevailing sentiment has always been they don't do those big matches during this tournament because they're saving them for later on down the year. And so that's kind of the thing that gets me thinking: like, what what could be going on where they don't necessarily need to save those matches for later? You know what I mean? Um, but at the same time, business is not great. So they might just be trying to throw everything they can <laughs> right. to, uh, to reinvigorate uh, fan interest, which either way, I'm happy because this is awesome. Uh, but let's jump into uh, the most re- – or uh, night 12, this was uh, March 20th, so this was like two nights ago, and uh, we had our first match of quarter action, um, quarterfinals action 
as Tetsuya Naito defeated Jeff Cobb 19 minutes and 4 seconds. And I know a lot of people were surprised by this, except for this guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know a lot of people were questioning on whether or not they would set up a potential Naito-Okada rematch. Especially, too, when you look at the way New Japan books sometimes when guys have pretty quick rematches. There is usually some kind of 50-50 booking. So Naito won at Wrestle Kingdom. I think the normal booking pattern would be for Cobb to get the win back here. Then you set up a rubber match down the road on, on a big show to kind of blow off the feud for the year. Uh, but a little bit of a different direction here. Uh, Naito ends up winning here and defeating Jeff Cobb, who has been like a juggernaut in this tournament and destroyed all of his opponents leading up to uh, this Naito match. Yeah, and um, that's something that wasn't surprising to me because, I mean, you know, uh, the, of course, could Cobb go through? Yes, but I felt like the logic that I laid out in the early part of our preview episode kind of held up here in that, we saw an entire trilogy of matches between Jeff Cobb and Okada last year. And uh, it's my opinion that whoever won this match was punching their ticket to defeating Okada in the next round. That still remains yet to be seen. But if Cobb beats Okada, that's another win in a fourth match of the series. And typically, whoever is the uh, runner-up or the winner of the New Japan Cup, they're either going to get the April or the May title shot. So that means we're getting five Jeff Cobb title, you know, five Jeff Cobb Okada matches in less than a year. That's really not New Japan style. I know they do a lot of matches, but like usually it's in in a calendar year period, like four max. You know what I mean? Right. And, you know, Cobb would definitely lose the title match to Okada. Well, maybe not definitely. I'm sure there's probably some people listening thinking like, well, he could win. But, you know, um, if you're reading the tea leaves, I believe Okada's holding this title for the greater part of this year. I I don't see him losing it, uh, in my opinion, honestly, until Wrestle Kingdom at the latest, you know, or soonest. So, you know, I'm just thinking like I know a lot of people wanted Cobb to get this win and get the Okada match. But I'm like, man, uh, another big prominent loss to Okada in a title match. Now we're getting into Sonata territory with Cobb. I don't know that that's what you want to do with his character. Whereas with Naito, you know, that's still a match that there's a lot of like interest in Japan in it. They've done it in the big, you know, in they've done the Wrestle Kingdom series. Now they're ready to kind of scale the, the feud down and do it on the B-level pay-per-views. We saw the same thing happen between Okada and Tanahashi, you know, after they did their big multi-series of matches in the Tokyo Dome, we saw them scale down and start doing those matches on the B-pay-per-view just a few years ago. That's what I think they're doing with him and Naito and, and getting as much juice out of the squeeze as they possibly can. That's why it just made the most sense to me that Naito would beat Cobb here. I know some people think uh, Cobb taking a second loss to Naito isn't, um, beneficial to Cobb, but in my opinion, two back-to-back losses to Naito is a lot less damaging than, like, losing three out of two on big-scale, you know, big shows against Okada, you know, because then it sets him back way back, and now he's not really a guy established to win a title, you know what I mean? 
Yeah, and I thought they did a good job of protecting Cobb in this matchup, even with the loss. So obviously Cobb was still has the knee taped up. So uh, Naito targeted the knee all throughout the match. So he, he came in with an injury, and Naito worked the injury throughout the match. Um, and also a, a big story for Naito in this tournament is the fact that he has not won a match with the Destino proper. He's been doing a bunch of roll-ups to uh, advance each night and get the wins in tournaments. So we saw that again here. He did hit the... Um, the, a version of the Destino it wasn't the Destino proper, uh, but that led to uh, Naito eventually reversing the tour of the islands into a roll up to get the win. So using the momentum off the tour of the islands to roll up Cobb, kind of get the quick one, two, three after this, you know, 19 minute hard fought match. So it just seemed like Cobb slipped on a banana peel and uh, Naito kind of got lucky here. Yeah, and we saw Naito do something very similar to Tanahashi in the last part of the round, um, or the previous round. Um, I'm kind of wondering, like, what LIJ has been up to between Naito and then, you know, Hiromu Takahashi picking up all these roll-up wins. Like, did they, like, go to, like, a, I don't know, like a Carl Gotch, like, you know, <laughs> specialty pin, like, seminar, like, where they're all, like, working on, like, neck bridges and different, like, roll-through sequences? Like, I don't know. Yeah, they, but, they, uh, they bought one of those, like, Granby roll DVDs they'd sell back in yeah, the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Teach you all these like quick like amateur wrestling like reversals and pins. Cradles. Yeah. <laughs> I think that they uh they watched one of like they watched like a D Malenko like seminar online and just like figured out how to do all the roll throughs that he used to do. That's <laughs> basically what's going on here. But um yeah, no, so Naito beats Cobb, a good match. Um I did not like it as much as their Wrestle Kingdom match necessarily. Uh but I think they, I think that Naito and Cobb have some pretty good chemistry, and I think that they probably got a better match down the line. And you know, the, here's the other reason why I felt like Cobb losing made sense. Sometimes New Japan does go 50-50, but oftentimes when you have a big star against a young up and comer who's beating everybody, if Naito's the only guy that's kind of got Cobb's number and has beaten him outright clean in recent memory, and, every, and everyone else. Cobb's kind of ran through. Makes sense to me for Naito to be the guy to beat him again and prove I really do got your number, kid. Because guess what? One of these days, and when I say one of these days, I'm not talking like five years from now. I'm talking about, you know, in the next eight months, Cobb's going to beat Naito probably in the G1. And it's going to be a big moment. And people are going to be like, oh, shit. And from that point forward, we're going to know Cobb can beat Naito at any point of his time or choosing. You know what I mean? So it's right. another like progression step in his, uh, character where like you know he's not just this bruising juggernaut but he has guys to overcome he has goals to obtain and like naito's one of them yeah i think another story here that they kind of told with the united empire these guys is kind of falling out one by one by one so eventually you know you had hanare being the first one eliminated then great okan gets eliminated in the third round and now uh jeff cobb getting eliminated in the quarterfinal that left osprey um, as the last Empire guy standing, and you know, those guys had kind of been jawjacking and teasing each other, like, oh, we're going to face each other, and it'll be Cobb Osprey in the finals, and we didn't quite get that. Yeah, it also kind of tells you where they're at in the pecking order, because they literally all lost in the order that I think the company views them. <laughs> exactly, yep. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so without victory, Naito moves on to the semifinals, and that brings us to the main event of the evening we got a first time dream matchup between two ultimo dragon toriumon mexico trainees 
in Kazushka Okada, the reigning IWGP World Heavyweight Champion, and he defeated Dragon Gate legend, founder of OWE, Shima, 20 minutes and 52 seconds. Real quick before we finish up talking about that matchup, there was a question here from uh, Reddit user Less Commission seventy two five two. This is for another Jeff Cobb loss. Can you say that in the G one this year he's most likely to win it as a story? He can beat he can be that he can't win the big one as he lost to Ibushi at Dominion last year, lost to Okada in the B Block Finals, and now two straight losses to Naito. I wouldn't say that this indicates to me that he's likely to win the G one. Um, I do think his previous year's success in the G1 could potentially be the catalyst for why he might be favored, especially if he goes into the G1 with some like steam, you know, Mm -hmm. depending on what happens between May and presumably August, if we're back to the regular like schedule. Um, Actually, no, that would start in what July. July, Yeah. Yeah. But um, I don't know. I still don't feel like Jeff Cobb is favored to win this year's G1. You know, I guess it depends on what's going to happen with uh, Wrestle Kingdom. But, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of people have a lot of faith in Jeff Cobb. I'm one of them. I like Jeff Cobb. And I think the company has really done a lot to, like, build him and make him. And I I see why so many people had him favored on their brackets for the New Japan Cup and everything and really got behind him after last year's G1. But I still don't think he's gotten to that place just yet i still see him as like upper b level gaijin player right now right you know? he's kind of in that michael elgin role uh yep you know that kind of higher you know upper mid card super strong gaijin they're gonna have great matches they're gonna get some some pushes some big wins but they're not gonna quite win a g1 or win the world title and i do think Cobb has what it takes to to pass that level and, and to potentially, you know, get a title, we win the title at some point or get more title shots. But uh, I don't think I can't see him winning the G one right now. I definitely think the scenario, like you mentioned, of him beating Naito in the G one, I think that makes a ton of sense. But for him to win the whole thing, especially with the potential of outsiders being in, and you just got to think of Okada's holding it. At Wrestle Kingdom, I don't think that they're gonna do. I don't think Cobb Okada is a a domain event that don't main event that you want to build up or hype up. I think they would probably have something set for something else set for Okada. There's also an albatross sitting around the neck of Jeff Cobb, and its name is the United Empire and Will Osprey. Mm. You can't win the G1 and be a dome main eventer and be the number two guy in uh in your own faction now could jeff is jeff cobb right now of a caliber of guy uh and a a player in the company where he could win a new japan cup and challenge for an iwgp title definitely could he challenge at like say a dantaku or a king of pro wrestling for sure so i'm not like saying he's not the caliber like iwgp caliber don't get it twisted but when you're talking about someone that can main event the dome you can't main event the dome and be the number two guy behind Will Ospreay in your own group. In order for him to, um, in order for him to be the guy that I'm sorry, I got dogs going crazy. We're dog sitting. We got crazy dogs sitting in the background here. One second. Yeah, but what I was saying is like, in order for Jeff Cobb to be uh, positioned, one of two things would have to happen. Either Will Ospreay would have to be out of the group 
and Jeff Cobb would have to be positioned as the top person, or Jeff Cobb would have to leave the United Empire, meaning he'd probably need to feud with Will Ospreay and go elsewhere and maybe go on a babyface turn. Something like that has to happen. As long as he's in this group, and I think the group's done a lot for him and will continue to do a lot for him, but he's not going to be a G1 winner if he's in the United Empire at this stage. Exactly, yeah. You rarely in any promotion ever see the number two guy in a stable really kind of outperform or out, you know, do a big goal than the number one guy. So I think eventually if Cobb is ever going to win a G1 or win the world title, he will eventually, like you mentioned, either have to oust Osprey and become the leader or he gets kicked out, does his own, either joins, you know, starts his own thing or joins Hontai or, you know, becomes a Bayface and uh, runs on his own. Yep, exactly. Uh, so now let's talk about uh, Okada and Chima. So this was a match that um, I think was pretty representative of what we saw out of Shima through most of the tournament. I don't think it was necessarily representative of what we saw from Okada because I thought most of Okada's matches in the tournament uh, skewed a bit higher than this one to a certain extent. But um, with that being said, it was a good match. And it was, uh, you know, for the... Um, you know, from just like the appeal of seeing two guys that you never expected to see wrestle one another, that part of it was really, uh, you know, awesome. But, uh, and it was good. I mean, mechanically, very, very good. The crowd was into it, but it just never really kicked into a higher gear. There were very few times where I felt like Okada was on the verge of a defeat uh, or where Shima had him in any sort of serious trouble. Um, Okada did give a lot to Shima in this match, just like we saw him do with Wato and Desperado earlier in the tournament. We saw a lot of teases of Okada defeating Shima with the money clip. Um, I liked that Okada broke out some of his Yave styling, so some of the throwback, you know, and that plays into the story that both of these guys are Ultimo Dragon trainees. And Okada even, um, you know, had some of his old offense. Uh, I forget what the, for some reason, I, I wanted to say the name of the move, but, uh, you know, I'm talking about the the big move. It's almost like a suplex, but it turns it's like Death Valley Driver. The uh, heavy rain. Uh, is that heavy rain? I think so. Yeah, well, he hit Shima with that. But the big story of the match was Shima trying to land the raw Meteora on Okada, meaning the uh, Meteora with the, the knee pads pulled down. And even though he was able to hit different variants of the Meteora on Okada and was unable to put him away, he never was able to hit that full-fledged, you know, unprotected Meteora and Okada. Uh, one has to wonder about Shima's knees at this state of the game because there are many times where he went, came off the top rope and was still landing, like, flush on his knees. <laughs> yeah, and I believe it was this match that he hit a Meteora to the outside to Okada on the floor. Um, yeah, there was cool stuff like that. But ultimately, you know, the finishing sequence was cool, but it came to the point where Okada... Hit him with, uh, what's it called, the landslide? Yeah, he caught him with the landslide driver and then hits him with the Rainmaker, puts him away. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I thought it was... Very a, definitive. Yeah, I thought it was a really good match. I definitely thought it was a more of a slower-paced match than we saw from Shima in the tournament. I feel like some of Shima's other matches were a little bit shorter, a little bit faster. This was a main event, you know, it was a more longer main event style and a little bit slower, but I thought both guys looked good. Uh, Shima you know, was doing a lot of sequences that he used to win other matches, like the, in the Goto match, he had those multiple 
springboard Meteoras. He was hitting that on Okada at one point, but that wasn't enough to put Okada away. Like you mentioned, he was looking for that Meteora from the top rope with the knee pads down. Um, was, was Just couldn't get a hold of that move. But, yeah, ended up just running into the landslide and being put away with the, the Raymaker at, at 20 minutes with 52 seconds. Yeah, so good match. Um, ultimately, that sets up the um, semifinals on the left side of the bracket as we are getting a rematch between Okada and Naito going into the finals. Yeah, and, you know, there's been backstage comments of Naito saying, you know, talking about, all right, Okada beat me in the entire match earlier this year. Uh, I really need to kind of get this win to redeem myself. So, Seems like a little bit of story here with this rematch of Okada Naito, and I mean we'll, we'll get predictions on the second, but definitely seems like they're they're doing a redemption story here for Naito, which could lead to a third match with these guys this year. Nice. So let's move on now to uh, night thirteen, which was the twenty first, which was uh, yesterday. So we had the first quarterfinal match up of the Dragon Shingo Takagi. Defeating his LIJ sailmate, the Ticking Tie Bomb, Hiromu Takahashi, 23 minutes and 43 seconds. So, um, this is my hot take on the match. I like this match a lot. And I thought it was good to very good, but, um, and I know we're going to probably disagree on this one, Jeremy, but I did not think this was a great or classic match whatsoever. Um, uh, again, I don't want to um, confuse anybody here. I thought the match was very good. I'd probably top out around like four stars on this, which is really good. But considering the fact that it was Shingo and Hiromu, um, first time ever match between these two guys, you know, stablemates of LIJ. The entire time Hiromu was out, sidelined with that neck injury, Shingo was kind of the premier junior of lij during that time period and by the time shingo transitioned to heavyweight haruma was back sort of you know headlining for the junior division once again and i you know i think myself along with many others always kind of wondered what a shingo haruma match would be like um this is kind of a dirty little secret one thing i i don't think a lot of people are willing to admit and it is my opinion. Since Hiromu has come back from the pec injury, he hasn't been the same guy that he was prior to that. Doesn't mean he's not a really good performer, but like the amount of like real classics that he's been putting out. Now, part of that might be the dance partners. He doesn't have the same selection of guys as like say Dragon Lee and Will Osprey and you know that Kushida. kind of, of yeah Kushida. You know that might be part of it. But I've also noticed that even though, you know, commentary puts over how wild and crazy he still is and he hasn't changed his uh, style, I think his style has changed quite a bit, if you want my honest opinion. In fact, in this tournament, this tournament's actually been the tournament where it feels like for the first time in a while where he's starting to break out some of that reckless abandonment again. And we saw a bit of that here in the match. But, um, you know, I I expected this match to be a lot more hard-hitting. I expected there to be a lot more drama going down the stretch. And truth be told, aside from there was one um, time bomb that Hiromu hit Shingo with. But at this point, that's not even really Hiromu's real finish. That might as well be like a, a, you know, a setup finisher. 
I never felt like Shingo was in any sort of danger. They did do a good job of like having Hiromu come in, fired up, and but this kind of remind if you want my honest opinion, this reminded me of Shingo's run through best of the super juniors, where he had very good matches with guys like say Ishimori and other people like that. But you know, he didn't really peek into the classic you know type of match until like the finals against like will osprey yeah. everything prior to that was like this juggernaut shingo fighting these juniors who didn't belong with him and that's kind of the story well the show match obviously is the the other outlier but like that's a good comparison i don't think that this was i've seen people like rating this really high i could never compare this to say like shingo show because i don't think it compared this to like the shingo show series and I think that that's probably like the the pinnacle for junior style wrestler versus Shingo, you know? Yeah. And I I just feel like considering how good Hiromu and Shingo are and the history and everything like that, this could have been so much more. Putting that aside, the match was still fantastic. I'd still like uh, <laughs> recommend it, but um, I just wanted a lot more, you know? And at 23 minutes, I thought we were going to, you know, I felt like it was going to kick into an even higher gear, and it just kind of didn't. It ended sort of abruptly. Hiromu lost, and I was like, "Damn!" Like I was expecting more. <laughs> yeah. Now I will say the one thing I, that I do agree about with you is I do think that these guys have a better match in them. However, um, me and the you know, cage ma- cage match inmates seem to be on, on the same wavelength here. This match, I read this match uh, four and a half, and I, I don't. I love this match a lot. I thought it was a lot of um, cool moves and counters there. I'm thinking of that, that uh, destroyer that Hiromu caught uh, Shingo with. There was the uh, sunset bomb to the outside to Shingo. Like you mentioned, I feel like Hiromu was kind of busting out a lot of that high uh, pace, high offense, that kind of reckless abandon uh, moves that he's used to, and so we got a lot of that. Um, Thought Shingo again was great with his selling and, and bringing in you know, the pumping bottomers and like anytime like Hiromu would kind of pick up speed, Shingo would just like kill him with a big lariat. Um, there was like a Yukon lariat spot like that where he just like crushed Hiromu and like flipped him out, flipped him inside out with um with the pumping bomber. Um, so yeah, I thought these guys had uh, really good chemistry. I thought it was a great uh, back and forth um, stuff here, and I for I never thought that Hiromu was beating Shingo, so for me that wasn't really an issue. Um, I, I didn't bite on the time bomb near fall like that, like I did for the evil match. Uh, but I still thought it was a really good matchup and a great closing sequence that um, eventually uh, Shingo he, he couldn't put him away with the main Japan pumping bomber. Eventually, um, had to uh, hit him with the last of the dragon. Yeah, I thought it was yeah. a great matchup. Now I will agree with you. Uh, I thought the closing stretch of the match was excellent, and that was. It was so good that that's what kind of convinced me. I wasn't thinking the match was ending. I thought that we were going into like the next phase where I'm like, oh shit, we're turning up finally, you know, for like the last five minutes. But uh, yeah, that stuff was all really, really fantastic. Now, you like to throw out the cage match ratings. I will tell you, Grapple has this at four flat. So, you know, different strokes for different folks. (laughs) Grapple is stingy with the stars. Man, yeah, and I see cage match throwing out ludicrous stuff all the time too. So you know, <laughs> uh, but either way, it's you know in, in that four to four and a half range. So watch it; you you define for yourself. But either way, it was a 
Uh, great matchup, good semi-main event. That's another thing. It, it was a semi-main event, so maybe those guys right. did think hold back a, a little bit and and save some some bigger stuff for a chance maybe when they're in a main event or a little bit of a bigger stage because this wasn't like the the biggest arena or anything that they were in on this night. Yeah, well, that was another thing too. I do feel like uh, as good as that Corkin crowd was two nights prior, I didn't think that this was the best crowd uh, on that night for whatever reason. I felt like they were a little more docile than you know, the, the crowds, the two nights prior. So that might've played into it. The other thing too, is I started to believe that Hiromu had a dark horse outside shot at being the the guy to win the new Japan cup, because, you know, you, you brought up a great point when you were like, well, he beat evil. Maybe he could be a never open weight title challenger. And that's true. But then I started thinking like, dude, what's left for him at, at junior. There's really nothing left for him to do at this current time. Why couldn't he just be the guy that runs through two former IWGP. Once he beat Evil, I was like, okay, now we're off to the races. He could beat anybody. And maybe he could be the guy that loses to Okada. They've already wrestled in the New Japan Cup a couple years prior. So why not let him be the guy? <laughs> you know, and that be like the true like ascension of Hiromu. And I, I I think they gave him a lot in this tournament, but I did think that maybe he could beat Shingo. I mean, he was rolling everybody up, so why not? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm kind of glad he didn't win because the the line that they were kind of pushing on commentary with his post match promo after beating Evil and then leading into this match was that if he won the New Japan Cup, he was going to challenge Desperado for the junior title instead of challenging. Well, I, say, I didn't I didn't know that, so I'm kind of glad too because <laughs> that would have pissed me off. Yeah, because post match after he beat Evil, he there was a point where he looked over at Desperado and I talked about if he wins, he's going to challenge Desperado. Um, you know what that is? That's like how we always talk about people working their own angles, but he's working against himself on purpose because he didn't like when you. That's like the wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Guys, don't get too excited. I'm not winning this shit because I'm working <laughs> my own story. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like you know, I'm not going really for the junior title. So if I win this shit, I'm challenging for the junior title. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, I was like, yeah, I don't want to. See him win and then challenge Despy. So yeah, I'm glad he that got lets it. you know to like temper your expectations. Be like, well, you know, the Bryce he didn't win, but at least we don't have to have him challenge. You know, waste his challenge on the junior titles. So there's that, right? <laughs> so yeah, so but overall, great main event here. Uh, glad uh, Shingo uh, got the win here, which took us to our uh, next quarterfinal matchup here, uh, the main event: Zach Saber Jr. The 2018 New Japan Cup winner, he defeats Will Ospreay here, 23 minutes in four seconds via submission. Yeah, um, this match blew me away. Um, that was another thing. Um, I liked the mat, the previous match, and like you mentioned, it had a lot of cool moves, but I didn't feel like the speed and tempo of the match. Um, was what I was expecting from those guys either. I, especially considering both of their junior roots, I kind of thought that we might get like a faster paced, high octane sort of match. It was a little more measured, which was good, but this match, Will and Zach, bro, they were going at least for at least three or four stands of the match, a mile a minute. Like they were going so fucking fast, but not just like rushing. They're so in sync with one another. We're like, they're doing these highly, highly complex, like, 
grapple spots, but they're not like your typical, you know, I don't know how to describe it, but there's certain, you know, classic chain wrestling, near fall pinning combinations that you've seen a million times. You know, for instance, you could think of like, say, a Brett Owen match, and I'm not even talking shit about it, but like, you know, you think of those like segments where they're doing the roll up, the roll up, one, two, one, two, or like Steamboat Savage, for instance. And we've seen that a million times. And that stuff's great. That's not what these guys were doing. They were doing next level, higher end British catch style wrestling with like these really complex, like new wave sort of like, uh, you know, escape style um, grappling maneuvers. But it wasn't grapple fuck. It was like boom, 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 like almost like a Dragon Gate-esque style like speed. And they're, they're in sync with one another the whole time. Like, I'm like, did they plan this out or are they just that in tune with each other? I can't actually tell. And I've got a pretty trained eye for it one way or the other. And that just tells you, like, these guys are on a different fucking level. And then, you know, not just that, but, like, it wasn't just all that kind of grappling. Like, each guy was having to go into the other guy's game plan. Like, you saw Will having to bust out some, you know, high-speed strikes and some uh, aerial-type maneuvers. And you saw Zach, uh, or I'm sorry, Zach having to do that. And then you saw Will, like, really having to go map-based and go grappling-oriented. And then both of them were using the other guy's game plan to try to set up their own stuff, you know, especially uh, Will Ospreay with the strikes and, the you know, the aerial stuff. And it was just, this match ruled. And, I mean, it's no surprise. In the past two years, we've seen really 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 high level um matches between both of them that were both like match of the year caliber you know contender caliber type matches between them both here as well as in rep pro and this continued to live up to the legacy of classic matches that these guys have had you know they they knocked it out of the park they did it again yeah this was an incredible matchup from the from the get-go like you mentioned these guys were wrestling at a breakneck pace and as soon as the bell rang, that opening sequence where they're exchanging holes and doing the arm drags and, and big boot each other until Osprey powders out, um, that was just a, a great way to open up the match. And it was just kind of a yeah, a one-upsmanship uh, throughout the the whole match. Uh, there was a cool sequence where Osprey did his uh, Oz cutter setup on the outside, um, did the hook kick and did the, the springboard Oz cutter to the outside. To that was cool. Saber that that was a cool spot. Saber didn't take that Oz cutter so great, though. Yeah, and there's a lot of I don't know, Saber <laughs> just bumps weird. We've talked about it before, especially with like when he takes hilarious and clotheslines. But he, uh, he does. But for the most part, I think he's gotten better. But that one, he like didn't even like belly bump for it. He like kind of sat out. It took a stunner. It was a, it was a, 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 a stunner. <laughs> yeah, except he did like a split legged like stunner. Like you know, he tried. <laughs> well. In all fairness, they were kind of in a tight space where that where they did it. Yeah. Uh, then after that, Saber got control back again. He uh, got a leg lock in the the ropes and was hanging off the apron there and did a lot of damage to uh, Osprey's knee, which would um, be a big key in this matchup here. Uh, well, even prior to that, um, there was a part where Will had kind of taken over and was working his strikes and really like controlling the pace and tempo and you know, avoiding the ground attack of Zach and everything like that, kind of just having his way. And there was a point where he went to the top rope, and when he went to the top, he slipped. Mm. And he, like, and he tweaked his knee. 
And as soon as he tweaked his knee, that was when Zach started going after that leg. And that, that became the predominant story of the match. Uh, not just, you know, obviously, like you mentioned, it was anything you could do, I could do better. That was part of it. But Zach had a, a prime target there for, you know, from Will's leg. And then um, prior to the spot where he got the, the leg lock on the apron, um, Will had gone to the top rope because he had Zach laid out on the apron. And he went to the top rope to do a uh, – jumping drop kick and Zach moved out of the way and he he hurt his leg even more at that point and that's when you know he really started cinching in all the heel hooks and ankle locks and knee bars and everything like that which was really cool yeah and I also love the kind of strike exchange they had at one point where they were both, yes. both down and they were kicking each other in the chest and then they both sat up and we were slapping the crap out of each other and then finally stood up and we were just exchanging strikes that was um, a great sequence there. Um, so yes. Yeah, yeah, I have a rule for my wrestling watching where it's like, you know, you can watch a match and, you know, think it's really great. But, like, you know, I think sometimes we'll be like, that was really great because, you know, it went a certain length. They did certain things. You kind of understand the tempo and the pace. But maybe you didn't personally enjoy it. But, like, matches that get me being like, holy fuck, and like, yeah, and, you know, and, like, really popping me audibly loud in like and get me like up and excited and like ha- bring that sort of energy that's the stuff that i'm really gonna like go higher on and that's what this match was doing like there was so much stuff i mean will bro will was incredible in this match zach was too but man both both these guys yeah this is an absolute incredible matchup uh towards the end here uh saber or osprey's going for the um Stormbreaker. saber slips behind Gets like a sleeper-like maneuver, slips down, also traps that injured leg. So it's like bent at an awkward angle. He has that trap also with like a a sleeper choke submission hole. And um, Osprey taps out. And there was some um, controversy with the finish because Osprey and all the United Empire, they were claiming that Osprey didn't tap out, that he was trying to just get his knee out, uh, you know, pull his knee out or escape his knee out from Saber's submission. Uh, but to me, it seemed like clearly he tapped out. So to to answer the part about what that maneuver was from a technical standpoint, that's a cap slicer. Mm. If, you, if you think, so obviously he's behind him, right? Mm-hmm. And the back of his shin is going into the uh, the small of the knee slash calf of Will, and then he's pulling Will into him. His shin is going into the into the calf. That's a calf slicer. That's the same move that we see Yo and AJ Styles use the calf killer. They just they're applying it from a different angle in a different different way. But if you think about the mechanics of it, just for like half a second, it is the same thing. Yeah, I'm picturing it now again. Yeah, that makes total sense. Uh, so yeah, doing that uh, that calf killer there. Um, getting the, the submission win will Osprey, you know, arguing with uh, Red Shoes and Kevin Kelly is saying that he, he didn't tap out, uh, wasn't a tap. Now, now it wasn't applied the way a traditional true calf uh, slicer from that position would be, but that makes sense because it's worked maneuver. So he kind of, uh, you know, positioned it kind of in a safer place where I don't think it would do too much. You know, the one thing, though, is you want to make sure whoever you're giving that to is pretty mobile either way, because, I mean, 
you think about how tight someone's hamstrings might be mid-match, pulling them back regardless of whether you're actually applying pressure, that could like, you know, really strain something if the person's not like truly mobily fit. Luckily, I think Will should be good to go. But um, and then not only that, but he's also applying a choke on top of it. So it, it's not just typical, you know, it's not just your traditional calf slicer, but he's kind of got, you know, multiple submissions applied simultaneously, which is, you know, that's uh, Zack Sabre's MO. As far as the, the finish goes, my take, it looked to me like like Zack Sabre or like Will Ospreay was doing uh, like he was tapping. You know what I mean? Yeah. And even if even if he wasn't. um like, let's say, you know, doing the whole, like, holding his hand up, you know, and really thinking about it and then going da 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 and doing the, the motion. I mean, for anybody that's watched wrestling for years, there was a long period of time where guys didn't tap out in pro wrestling. I mean, in Japan they did, but, you know, all over the world they either did the yes, yes, yes. They, like, shook their head. Right. <laughs> or they would take their hand and wave it. You know, to let the person know I want out of this. And that's what it looked like Will was doing to me. It looked like he was, you know, audibly and verbally submitting. Either way, there is another part of this where even if Will wasn't necessarily tapping per se, um, his leg had taken a lot of damage in the match. And, you know, in real combat sports, referees have the autonomy to end a match if they deem the person unable to protect themselves and they're in true danger and that's called a referee stoppage uh there is some precedent for it in new japan if you think back a few years back to the new beginning when tanahashi was the white belt champion and he was defending it against suzuki he was in um, a heel hook for so long that he couldn't get out and red shoes called the match i don't i don't know if you recall that jeremy but that happened yeah you know? i do remember he didn't that tap out We've seen times where guys have been um, now a chokehold is obviously a little different, but we've seen guys in the um, the uh, Okada. What's Okada's finishing move called again? The um, money clip. Yeah, we've seen like Shingo and Hiromu in the money clip and not tap out and, and get ref stoppages. Now, do I think that hypothetically, the, uh, like Osprey might not have been in this maneuver long enough to believably? from a kayfabe standpoint, um, warrant a ref stoppage. There, there could be an argument for that, for sure. At the same time, there was a lot of criticism in the previous match, during the Sonata match, that like Red Shoes didn't stop the match soon enough. you know. And Will was involved with that match. So you know, there might be something to that element of storytelling where they decided, hey, People didn't like that he didn't call it off soon enough last time. Let's call it off sooner in this match and, you know, add that little bit of wrinkle to what's going on. Either way, it still looked like he was tapping. Even if he didn't quote-unquote intend to, he was still tapping nonetheless. And, you know, you can't, like, fake tap in pro wrestling and then, like, be expected to, uh, you know, be given the pass. So, you know, um, was there some conspiracy, you know, some... Um, not conspiracy, but was there, you know, I don't know, like, what, what what's the word I'm looking for? Like a bad judgment call? I, I wouldn't even call it that, but, like, you know, was, fuck, uh, controversy. Mm. Was there some controversy here? Sure. Could that lead to something in the story down the line? Um, possibly, you know. 
this might be a way to kind of protect Osprey for, you know, whatever they're going to do with him down the line. That might be part of it too. But uh, ultimate, and I will say this, I didn't really love the finish. Um, for my money, I thought it was like a little abrupt and I didn't like that it was a little bit, like I wouldn't call it flat out fuck finish, but it wasn't completely clean. But I get it. Like Will's their boy. He's one of the top heels. They're trying to protect him. I think that this was a protected finish in a certain sense. So, but uh, I still love the match. I'm somewhere between four and a half and four and three quarters. I thought it was one of the best matches in New Japan this year. And I, I probably think that this is the match of the tournament so far. Yeah, I went uh, four and three quarters on it. I like their New Japan Cup match last year a little better than I went five stars on. So I just went, you know, the, the Cowards rating here with this one. Um, you know, the point that you mentioned, Kevin Kelly brought that up on commentary, also saying, talking about Red Shoes ending the first match of Sonata um, not fast enough, and then talking about how it possibly could have ended it too soon here. But I'm in agreement with you. I, I felt like it looked like Osprey straight up uh, tapped out, and I kind of liked how abrupt the finish was because normally with those guys, you get more more of a crazier finishing sequence, and I feel like Osprey's kind of had Zach's number the last couple times, so... Yeah, and Zach has proven obviously if he catches you with a hold, no matter what the hole is, he he can beat you. So with him working on that, well, what? Go ahead. Oh no, I'm sorry. What I was gonna say is what I didn't. It's not that I didn't like that he got caught, and then that he quit abruptly. What I didn't like was that there wasn't a definitive nature to the finish. Yeah, like like, they were I, they were trying to add some doubt that yeah, he didn't actually. Yeah, I don't. I didn't think that was necessary, but you know, maybe we can quote unquote let it play out. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah, so big win for Saber here, and also you know throughout this match he was um, talking in Japanese, and then in the post match promo he said some Japanese lines. And then he uh, talked about wanting to, you know, he he won the twenty eighteen cup, but you know that's not good enough, and he he wants to win uh, this year's cup. He just beat last year's tournament winner, and he wants. To win the world title, so uh, say we're getting the win here, big rematch against Shingo in the semifinals. You, you know, with Saber, uh, I mean, like the last time he really got a push like this was that 2018 New Japan Cup, and then since then he's definitely been in the mix and done some things. But you know, probably the highlight of his run in New Japan since then has been his work in the Dangerous Techers with Taichi, and since that group is kind of put on hold for the time being. You know, if you notice. He's really, like, invested in his uh, weight training. He's added bulk. He's added definition. Um, he's really upped his submission game, as crazy as that sounds. I've noticed him just doing a lot more that he never has done in the past. So, like, he's still, like, learning and a student of the game. And, you know, I think there's a little bit of uh, Randy Ortonism there. You know, anytime Orton is getting ready for a big push, possible title run you know he gets himself in, in prime shape i think that's what we're seeing with zach right now and i'm not saying for sure zach's gonna be like champion or anything but like i wouldn't be surprised at this point if he is the guy that wins the tournament yeah i mean especially with just the, the big wins that he's been getting in the role that he's on and then again if you look at the shingo saber rivalry so saber got the win the g1 Shingo got the win back at Power Struggle and title defense. So if they do go with that uh, New Japan booking on the 50-50, it could be uh, Sabre's turn here again to, to get the win back on Shingo. Yeah. The one thing I'll say, we got a question here, but before that, uh, Zach 
and Tai Chi both need to talk to their gear makers and they need to get a larger pair of trunks, both of them. Because <laughs> okay? they both beefed up, which is all fine and good, but like showing a lot of ass, okay? <laughs> okay, and this is not that kind of promotion. This is an upstanding sportsmanship, you know, uh, promotion. You know, this, we don't need all that. The same DDT. We don't need all that. This is not DDT. <laughs> uh, see, it's a question here from uh, Let's Commission 7252. It says, after years of pushing him, you guys say that it's a bad decision to have Zack Sabre Jr. win the cup for a second time, but this time win the world title? Um, I'm a little confused by this question. I don't know if maybe there's a typo. He said he's he's claiming that we said it's a bad decision for Zach to win again. Or maybe that can do do we think it's a bad decision? Because I don't recall ever having said that. I do think we might have said that he was an unlikely winner. Although I don't think I've ever outright ruled that out you know what i'm saying so maybe that is yeah so i'll just assume that what he's saying is do we think it's a bad idea um but if he did win would he need to win the world title you know because there is that conundrum if he's a two-time winner but he comes up short what does that really do for him you know what i mean we've we've puts, also puts him in uh starts to put him in goto level yeah well yeah in the new japan cup yes uh, another recent um you know comparison could be like Abushi, you you know, it was a while before, you know, Abushi was winning G1s, but he wasn't winning the title. Right. You know, so uh, there's that, like, conundrum there. Um, I think it would be, here's the deal. Um, At this point, I think Zach or Shingo are winning the tournament. I don't think that the winner is beating Okada, period. So you're, you're in a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation either way. And so you kind of just have to, as a booker and as a, well, as a fan, you kind of got to put yourself in, in the booker position, you know, if, if you're trying to figure out what they're going to do and think about the business side of it and kind of figure who do you think would be the best choice for a April title defense? Where are they? They're in uh, Sumo Hall? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. They're, they're either in Budokan or they're in Ryagoku, one or the other. Um you know, should it be Zach um, getting the title shot and then losing and kind of getting the re-elevation? Or, you know, there's the story. Shingo had that incredible run last year. He was the runner-up. You give him the win this year, but then he loses to Okada again just after having lost him in the Dome back in January. So, you know, which is the lesser of two evils? Which is better for the company? Which is better for the performers? I don't know. You know, that's... I guess that's uh, in the hands of Gato, but uh, I could see. I think I'm leaning towards the Zack Saber argument, honestly. Yeah. So the the big April show is April 9th and we have Goku Hyper Battle. Awesome. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely see yeah doing a Saber Okada match there, doing a uh, big title bench. I, I don't know if having Saber win is the right call. I mean, they have. I feel like he has been like leaning into you know becoming. You know, almost in that Kenny Omega role where he's learning the language, he's living there, he's becoming this like fan favorite gaijin, um, and so there there could be potential they want to capitalize on that and kind of push him and give him the belt. But I still feel like Okada's going to hold the belt for a majority of this year. Yeah, and I mean, certain guys like you know, obviously, 
ahead of him in the pecking order when it comes to Gaijin talent. Um, you got Jay White, you got Will Ospreay above him for sure. Maybe, possibly Cobb, but definitely those two, you know. But at the same time, look at how infrequently both Will Ospreay and Jay White have been in the country. During that same period of time, Zach's never left. <laughs> and he's been really endearing himself to the country and to the audience by learning the language, by forming that incredible tag team with Tai Chi and just all the antics on the post-match and in the press and in the media and everything like that. And I think that you kind of see that really coming through and how the audience is getting behind him during these matches. And it's because he's been there. And uh, I think that, like you, you said, I think that that's a key key thing uh, to his, his push. It's not just that he's this virtuoso wrestler, you know, and this dynamic, you know, um, Mike guy, but I think it's the fact that he has ingrained himself into the culture as well. And that, uh, you know, that might be the leg up him, you know, all the time he's been in the country, that that and everything else uh, moving there in the language, that might give him the leg up potentially down the road over, say, those other three guys when it comes to being the top gaijin. Yeah. So that's going to take so us now. Now's the time. Yeah, if they're going to, yeah, I think definitely, like, go ahead and push him now. But I don't know if winning the world title in April is the right call. Maybe it might be. And Maybe you have a call to win the title back later in the year, but bro, if now listen, like the the thing that everyone's expecting is Okada to just go through, but like if they were to put the title on one of these three guys, but more specifically Zach, because Zach's never won the belt before, I would I would really freak out. Like that would be a bold, bold bold move by New Japan's part. Like, that could be something really exciting. It'd be like, fuck. Yeah. They had him beat Okada. <laughs> I feel like, that would, yeah, that'd be a pretty buzzworthy, um, you know, buzzworthy move to do. And also, too, if um, Naito does beat Okada, I think that can add a story of where Naito thinks he's going to get his redemption and get a title shot by beating Okada, but then Okada loses the belt, and so the Naito has to dig deeper to, to get a tile shot. One thing too, um, you know, we're almost done with this uh, review. We've had so few actual questions about this tournament. Normally at this point, you know, we get a lot of questions every episode, you know, about what our fair match was, what our predictions were, yada, yada, yada. And we've gotten like almost none of that. I don't know if like something happened in the algorithm this week, but that kind of tells me that maybe while in the middle of New Japan doing a really, really exciting quarterfinals, people have kind of tuned out because of how maybe less than the first three, you know, rounds of the tournament actually were. Yeah, I've been seeing like no buzz or hype for this tournament on Twitter. I mean, the, the diehards are tweeting about it, but I haven't seen a ton of people talking about it. Like, yeah, our questions the last few weeks have been dwindled down. Like, this week there was, like, barely any questions. Yeah, um, I'm like, what? <laughs> uh, and this is the most exciting time of the tournament. So it's like, you know, and we could be, like, the the hip podcast, be like, you idiots, you're missing out. But, like, I get it, you know? If, if you were just going off of the Golden Series and just going off the first three rounds of New Japan Cup, and then you expect, you know, it, it's almost like a... 
you know, you're in a bad relationship and, uh, you know, the person's going to walk out and right before they walk out, you try to like be on your best behavior and it's like, uh, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Man, you should have done that a few months ago, you know? Right. That's, that's kind of what it feels like. It's like, oh, now you guys want to give me, you know, Hiromu and Shingo. <laughs> right. And then also, too, I think another thing that could have hurt, too, was just that crazy stretch of shows that you had. You had so uh, many. Uh, from, you had, like, the 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th, 17th, 18th, 20th, 21st. There was this huge streak of back-to-back shows. So even if you were interested you pretty much were watching. I had to watch it every day if you didn't want to fall behind or get spoiled. So it was just kind of hard uh, to keep up with towards that uh, middle part there. Yeah, even the announcement of the Best of Super Juniors has me nervous because, like, I've been cherry-picking these shows. And I'm like, damn, dude, they're going to be doing, like, five, six matches a night for, uh, you know, a month and a half, two months. Like, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it it was good because kind of, like, you know, watch these undercards and fast forward, kind of skip through the finishes and then focus on the tournament matches. But yeah, having more tournament matches is going to be a little bit uh, tougher. <laughs> well, let's get into the final night. Night 14. Uh, this is the uh, semifinals, um, March 26th. Uh, the show is going to be opening up with a team of G.O.D. and Six or Nine uh, and Hiroshi Tanahashi taking on the Bull Club team of Fale, Owens, Fantasmo, Gato, and Ishimori. We have the Chaos team of Ishii and Yano teaming up with Togi Makabe to take on Suzuki-gun team of Suzuki, Taichi, and Kanemaru. Third match of the night, Doki, Desperado, and Takamichinoku of Suzuki-gun take on Evil, Sho, and Yujiro Takahashi of the House of Torture. Fourth match of the night, we have Goto, Tiger Mask, and Honma taking on the Stronghearts, Shima, El Lindemann, and T-Hawk. So I think that's one everyone's kind of you know, p- going to pay attention to for sure. Fifth match of the night, the cast team of Yo and Yoshihashi take on the Great Okan and Jeff Cobb of the United Empire. Sixth match of the night, we have uh, Bushi and Hiromu of LIJ taking on Hanari and Will Ospreay of the United Empire. You know, so Hiromu, Will Ospreay uh, on opposite sides. That's interesting. Yeah. And then the main event and semi-main event, we have... Um, Semi-final match action as Shingo takes on Zack Sabre Jr. And the winner of that will take on the winner of Tetsuya Naito and Kazushika Okada. So before we get into the semifinal matches, uh, Jeremy, any thoughts on anything on the undercard there real quick? Well, I think in the Yo and Yoshihashi versus Okan and Cobb, it seems like it might be clear that Okan and Cobb is going to be the unit they go for with the tag title match in. Obviously, Yo eat the pin there, and then it looks like we'll get Okan and Cobb versus Bishamon at Hyper Battle. Um, Agreed. We still have, you know, teasing of the junior tag title match with that multi-man in the opener with um, G.O.D. teaming up with 6 or 9 and Tanahashi against Bullet Club. So that story is continuing there. Um, let's see, the Chaos-Suzuki-Gun match. Um, doesn't seem to be any storyline elements there. Uh, Death- well, there's... There's the, um, oh, yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. The, the, the match after that, though, they got Desperado and Show on opposite sides. Right, so that seems to be a clear hyper battle title match. Um, strong hearts in action, that should be fun. Hopefully, uh, we'll see those guys continue on after this tournament. And then, yeah, like you mentioned, Osprey and Hiromu opposite sides. That'll, that'll be fun to see. I haven't seen that in a while. So, let's just some good yeah. stuff on this undercard. 
Yeah, I know one thing that's interesting is, you know, we've got Osprey taking on Minoru Suzuki for the British title in the near future, but none of that really came into any sort of play during this tour whatsoever. Um, on the opposite side of that, I do think that potentially, regardless of whether Zach wins New Japan Cup or not, coming off that match with Will Ospreay, I think one reason they might have been doing the uh, the questionable finish is potentially running Zach and Osprey back against one another for the British title, whether that be here or in Rev Pro down the line as well. Yeah, that's one thing I thought about. Them definitely doing another Rev Pro title match at some point. Yeah, especially since that's who Will Ospreay took the title off of originally anyways. Right, and especially if they do, I mean, Osprey's held that belt for a while now. If you wanted somebody to beat him, I think Sabre's a good guy that can beat him um, if they wanted to flip the belt to another guy that's, that can draw and be bigger. But I don't know if Sabre wants to be going back and forth to the UK like that. Um, well, Zach's, Zach's the most prolific and most, you know, widely known associated champion in Rep Pro's history, so. Right, I think he's like a three-time champion and held it more days and more defenses than anybody else in history. So, yeah, so definitely they could go for him or just have Osprey kind of get that that big win over him. And just continue to build Osprey potentially for maybe a guy like Ricky Knight Jr. to beat in the future. All right, awesome. So uh, we've done quite a bit of discussion here, but I'll just give you my quick predictions and thoughts. Um, very excited about the finals. You've got four mega superstars. Uh, in very compelling rematches going into the finals, which I think is smart because they're not, you know, uh, at this point throwing any of these matches away. They're matches that we've seen in the recent past, but there's still a lot of steam and heat behind them. And um, I, I, my opinion, I think Okada's losing to Naito. Now, if Okada were to look to beat Naito, um, I actually think it makes the most sense for Okada to win the entire New Japan Cup. Now, they've never done that before. Uh, very rarely have they ever had the champion, if ever. I, I can't remember if we decided if the champion had ever been in it before or not. But regardless, if you were ever going to do a year where the champion wins it, the 50th anniversary with Okada being that man would make sense. And then at that point, you could potentially set up, like we've discussed, like, say, the Ibushi title defense or some other major title defense. Who knows? You know, something crazy could happen. You know, uh, Kenny Omega walks out. <laughs> 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 but, um, you know, I think the, the more likely scenario is Naito's going to beat Okada. And then at that point, I think it makes the most sense for Naito to lose because typically, typically, the runner-up gets the May title defense. And if Naito actually beat the champion and then loses in the final, he still has a claim over the champion regardless. And so if he were to win the tournament, you're only getting the one title challenger. But if he loses the tournament, you get the tournament winner in April and then Naito in May. So you've set up two title defenses that both have you know, fan interest behind them. So from a business perspective, that just makes the most sense to me. And I don't think you can go wrong with Shingo or Zach, you know, uh, against Naito as the final. Um, you know, Naito and Shingo, stablemates, they've only wrestled one time in New Japan, and it was a match that people loved during that G1, but maybe got 
seen by lesser people because it was during a sort of a random G1 night, even though, you know, it was still a match the year contender that year and had like, I don't know, five stars, four and three quarter stars, something crazy like that. I don't know. Um, and this would be the biggest platform they've ever done it on. It seems they've been holding it off. So you could definitely do that. But Naito and Zach have a longstanding history, especially in this tournament specifically. And Zach has always kind of had Naito's number. And I think Zach beating Naito in the finals is the thing that makes the most sense to me. I think um, Zach can handle a loss from Okada more than Shingo can at this point. And I think the elevation of him winning the tournament does more for him at this point than it does for Shingo, who's already held the world title and also wrestled in the Dome against Okada recently. So my prediction, Naito's going to beat Okada, and then, then in, and Zach is going to beat Shingo, which I'm most looking forward to the match between Shingo and Zach, considering how fantastic their two-match series was last year. So this is almost like the, the rubber match. And then in the finals, Zach wins, setting up the re, you know uh, the April title defense between him and Okada, which we saw back in 2018. And this is, um, you know, what four years later. So, you know, is that right? Is that four years? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean that that's also a fantastic story as well. Like Zach's back after all these years against the same man he was unable to defeat before. Can he and he has beat him since then? Can he do it again? That's what I think is going to play out. That's my prediction, and that's where I think we're going. Yeah, I think I'm in the same line as you. I don't think like I'll see, like you mentioned, if if Okada's going to win it, this is the year to do it. I just don't see a title challenger really lined up for him for April. You could do the Ibushi thing, but it's like, all right, he wasn't cleared for the cup now. He just he's he's ready now, and you're gonna do that match. Um, I I just don't know. I don't know what's up with Ibushi. I don't know if he's actually ready or not. So I just don't think that's going to happen. And then I can't think of anybody else. Even if they're if they're able to bring somebody in, I guess they they could bring in an outsider. But I don't know if they're gonna have the clearance just yet for the April show. So I have a hard time seeing who can actually. Be the challenger also going to get some um, guy from, you know, Glade or Dragon Gate or Noah or whoever to, to challenge. So I think it makes a lot more sense to just, yeah, go with having Naito beat him. So Naito could be the main challenger and then having um, either Shingo or Saber beat Naito to be, to be the, the hyper battle challenge. But, yeah, I, I'm going to go with uh, Saber winning here. I feel like... Um, you know, him beating Osprey, I think that's a, even though they've had a, a back and forth rivalry, I think that's a kind of a big win there. And then I, I think with him um, getting another win on Chingo would be a big deal, following up that Osprey momentum, and then getting him into that uh, tournament final here. Now I know Zach beat a young lion on the way to the top, and then I forget. Oh, and then he beat Doki. So neither of those were, you know, uh, pro, very prolific victories. But you take a look at the last three guys he would have beaten to get to the finals, and I mean, Okan, Shingo, and Will Ospreay, I mean, that's a, a pretty impressive, like, resume of guys to beat, and then finally Naito, like, those four guys back-to-back-to-back, to back to back, that that would be, that would definitely be something huge for him, you know, if that were to be the case. Yeah. But, uh, in either case, uh, we're getting the, you know, we're getting the semifinals on March 26th, and then the finals are the next night on March 27th. So 
by the time we record next week, the this will have already played out, and we will be correct. <laughs> <laughs> Always ahead. Except uh, for my entire bracket, which was, like, literally perfect almost, and then got busted, like, in the course of just, like, one night. Got destroyed. <laughs> yeah, so then the, uh, the finals will be the next night, like you mentioned, Sunday, uh, March 27th. Both of these shows in um, Osaka Joe Hall. So, so. Wow. Big show feels here for both these nights And yeah really looking forward to Whatever the finals are going to be And yeah that's going to uh, wrap up New Japan uh, Cup coverage For this week And next week we'll be back to review The semifinals and the finals Nice so we got some uh, uh, A bit of news here So first thing uh, John Moxley versus Will Ospreay Is official for NJPW's Windy City Riot event Next month and uh, that event is going to be airing on pay-per-view on Fight TV and then probably within 48 hours be uh, aired on New Japan World on delay, as has been the case with some of their specials. Um, very excited for this one. I saw the promos from Moxley and Will Ospreay, and I thought both both guys did a really good job, uh, especially Will. Like Will did such a compelling job bearing John to where the point where like he got me thinking, like, is John Moxley actually a good guy? Maybe he is a dickhead. Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, they both had a good back and forth promos. You know, Osprey was just wanted Moxley to say his name, and because you know Moxley has been talking about wanting to wrestle the top guys in New Japan, has not mentioned Osprey, and so yeah, Osprey really wanted Moxley to say his name, and then Moxley finally responded. And then yeah, Osprey cut that killer promo and talking about, oh, you, you thought we were, we were mates because we we went drinking one night. And just like went into they this, had Korean barbecue, <laughs> yeah, and I like, just <laughs> went into this whole thing on like, how like Mox like disrespected his his uh, apartment and uh, yeah, so some fire promos. It should be a great matchup. I thought a big matchup to do um, on this uh, New Japan of America show. Um, so should be a, a big deal. Should get some buys. It's going to be like you mentioned on. Uh, Fight TV, 1999, um, and then an archive version will be airing on New Japan World. They're not doing the live Japanese feed like they've done in the past uh, for these shows, so it's all going to be on Fight and then later on uh, New Japan World. Well, it makes sense. I was listening to WrestleNomics. They're talking about how like Fight TV operates at like an $8 million a year like deficit. So, <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, I like that they said at a later date, but they're not saying the date, but, like, every time it's been 48 hours, so, like, if it's not 48 hours, be very, like, surprised, you know? Yeah. But, yeah, I love that John Moxley's like, I thought we were friends, bro. We had <laughs> Korean barbecue together. <laughs> oh, um, next bit of news, Best of the Super Juniors Tournament is returning to its traditional spot on the NJPW calendar. New Japan announced that uh, Best Super Juniors 29 will uh, begin in Aichi Sunday, May 15th, my birthday. Tournament will conclude in Tokyo on Friday, June 3rd. We did get a question here from at Seal3Hey. He said, who do you think we could see in BOSJ this year now that it will be in its normal spot on the calendar? Well, I guess, you know, there's still some questions that need to be answered. One, is it going to be single block or back to the normal two block? And also, are we going to be able to get foreigners in for this tournament? Um, if we want to work under the assumption that we can get foreigners in for the tournament, 
Um, I think uh, bringing in guys like Chris Bay, uh, TJP, uh, Clark Connors. He's mentioned he wants to be in Super Junior to win the junior title. Um, guys like that. Uh, Dragon Lee. I think he. No, I want Dragon Lee, but I'm concerned about his association with AAA. Mm. But at the same time, like. It seemed like New Japan was willing to work with him in the past, even though you know, even though I think even back then he was kind of maybe kind of quasi doing stuff with AAA. So that one he might get the pass, but you know there are other guys out there, like for instance, like Loretto Kid and like Vikingo, who I would like fucking kill to have in this tournament. I don't think mm-hmm. they could ever be in it. Yeah, I'm trying to think who else. Um... I mean, obviously, from a domestic standpoint, the strong hearts could all be in it. Uh, you, you can get uh, T-Hawk and, and Lindemann in there. Yeah, I, I don't have any names, just kind of the names that you threw out there. I mean, there's definitely guys like that have worked for Strong or for Impact or even, uh, you know, who knows what, what's going to happen with the ROH AEW thing going forward. That might open some doors as well. So, um, But I, if there was a name out there that I think, needs to come in probably wants to come in hasn't been able to and people would freak out it's probably dragon lee yeah that probably like the biggest uh pop there and he's been always tweeting he keeps tweeting that he misses new japan and he wants to get back so um and at one point he, he did have like a a separate contract with just new japan um and that kind of went into the pandemic so i don't know what the status of his contract is if that got rolled over if they're planning on finding a new one but hopefully he will be in best super juniors Two new matches have been announced for NJPW Strong Lone Star Shootout on Friday, April 1st. In a singles bout, Jonah will be taking on Blake Christian. Uh, the other new match is going to be Strong Openweight Champion Filthy Tom Waller. He'll team up with Royce Isaacs and Jared Kratos to take on Fred Rosser, Alex Coughlin, and the DKC. The newly announced matches will not air as part of the Fight TV Live pay-per-view on April 1st, but they will be taped to air at a later date on NJPW Strong. NJPW Strong Lone Star Shootout, April 1st, 5 p.m. Central Time. Um, so far, we have the matches of Jay White versus Speedball Mike Bailey, Killer Cross versus Minoru Suzuki, Ishii versus Dickinson, Rocky Romero versus Renderita, Finn Juice and Daniel Garcia, and Kevin Knight versus Mascara Dorada, Carl Fredericks, Clark Ponders, and Yuya Yamura, and then the exclusive strong matches I just listed previously. Uh, Mascarada, uh, that's, that's another name there uh, that could be brought oh, in. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and he was fantastic on the uh, – uh, TJP's another name too, so, you know, we'll see. Um, and then on April 16th, the, um, you know, uh, previously announced NJPW um, All Japan Pro Wrestling Cork and Hall 60th Birthday Festival will be airing, um, and we have a, a list of matches that have been announced for the show. Um, we have the matches between uh, Rio Inoue versus Kosei Fujita, Toriano and Tajiri versus Black Mensa Ray and Yoshinabu Kanemaru. Uh, we have a match between Takao Amori, Ryohei Oiwa, and Yuta Nakashima versus Yoshitatsu, Rizuki Taguchi, and Master Wato. Uh, another match between Yuma Aoagi, Atsuki Aoagi, Togi Makabe, and Tomoaki Hanma as they take on the team of Naito, Bushi, Shingo, and Hiromu. 
semi-main event, we have Suwama, Shitaro Oshino, and Dan Tamura versus Hiroki Goto, Yoshihashi, and Yo. And then the main event is tag team action, dream match as Kento Miyahara and Hiroshi Tanahashi, team ace, take on the team of Jake Lee and Sonata. Um, that is assuming Sonata is able to go at that point, uh, considering the eye injury. Yeah, he might need to, uh, you know, put a mask on, uh, the, the protective mask, if he wants to compete. But, yeah, there's a possibility he might not make it. They might need to switch some things up. But, I mean, overall, kind of similar to what we saw with the, the Noah Card, a lot of tag matches, um, guys with history and uh, previous partnerships. But it should be a fun show. Yeah, I think the most interesting thing, obviously, the main event, you know, Kento Miyahara and Tanahashi teaming together, that's a dream tag team. And Jake Lee Sonata, that, that one sounds pretty good as well. So uh, we'll see how that plays out. But, uh, you know, definitely want to check that out when it occurs. And then uh, we have just a couple questions, the recommended match of the week, and we're going to get out of here. So um, first question from Les Commission, 7252. They asked, can you say that the feud between Doki and Kevin Kelly is better than the G.O.D. versus Bullet Club feud? Um. No, I, I can't say that. I mean, I, I, Doki has. <laughs> What's been, Doki been doing? He's just been like banging the like the pipe near his desk, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't even. I I haven't even given that much thought, honestly. Yeah, I would say I'll say like we talked about earlier, the God and Bull Club feud has been uh, pretty hot so far. I don't think it's as good of a feud as the the ongoing feud that uh, Bad Luck Folly had with uh, every ring announcer ever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, his second question, he said, from any match in the pandemic era of New Japan, 2020 to 2022, Jeremy, what match would you have commentated with Kevin Kelly? And Josh, what match would you have commentated with Chris Charlton? Hmm. I, I feel See, like it I should, think he's got this a little backwards. Russ will say, I feel, it should be the other way around. Like, you should be with Kevin and I should be with Chris. Uh, yeah, I'm a color guy. And uh, Jeremy's play-by-play. Or uh, lead. Either way. Uh, let's see. What match would I want to call? I can uh, tell you what match I would call. It's pretty easy. What? Um, I mean, there's a lot of great matches, and I'm not saying that this is the best one, but if I could have called any match live and, and been there and really enjoyed it, it would have been that New Japan Cup match uh, from a couple years ago between Minoru Suzuki and Yuji Nagata. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I loved that match. I love the story and the physicality and then the surprise win of Yuji Nagata. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, if yeah, I, I've never really commentated wrestling. I don't think I would be very good at it. But if I did, that would probably be the one I'd want to do. I would want to do the Shingo versus Tanahashi never title match from uh, New Beginning in Nagoya last year. That's a good pick. I good, love that deep, match so much. Deep cuts, deep cuts. <laughs> All right. Well, like questions week. So, you know, um, for those of you that are listening, anybody that's listening, get those questions in, you know, helps us out. But um, we're going to kick it over to the recommended match of the week. So last week I recommended the match between Scott Hall versus Kijimuto from 2001 for the Triple Crown title. Jeremy, you checked out this match. What'd you think? Yeah, interesting matchup. It's just, you know, two names you don't really expect to see. You know, they were billing it as a, a dream match, and I'm not sure who dreamed of Scott Hall versus Muto, but um, 
definitely very interesting. It definitely seems this match was more about the kind of the star power and aura of both guys versus the the actual moves or the actual match. Um, you know, Lucho big entrance, big presentation, big ring entrances for uh, both guys. Of course, Scott Hall does the you know traditional throw a toothpick in the opponent's uh, body. Um, but overall, I felt- like that uh, Muto grabbed the toothpick, smelled it, and then acted disgusted. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, Scott Hall having tooth decay is something I can totally believe. <laughs> um, but yeah, the the match, I would say the opening of the match, it was kind of a slow uh, pace, a very like feeling out process. Guys kind of exchanging holes and, and trying to kind of figure out the game plan. And uh, towards the end of the match, it, it picked up more with. Um, you know, Scott Hall, he was pretty much, you know, the, the gaijin that was getting heat on the, you know, hero baby face in Muto. And so he, he was getting heat on Muto, got hit the, the big fall away slam. There was a big um, top rope backdrop at one point in the matchup. And then uh, Muto was kind of fighting from underneath until he could make the comeback. He was, you know, fighting for the Shining Wizard. Um, there was one where he missed, uh, but eventually he caught the Shining Wizard in the corner. To uh, Scott Hall, he he went for the the Muda Moonsault, uh, missed that, uh, but then eventually he was able to uh, get the the Shining Wizard on Scott Hall, who did a did a great sell for a, yeah. for both of the, the Shining Wizards, and yeah, overall a, a fun matchup. Also, I wouldn't say this is a, a classic or any kind of great matchup, but it's just one of those things where it's just something you would think would have actually have happened, and uh, but yeah, I felt like it was you know just kind of your Two pro wrestlers doing a, a pro wrestling match, if, if you know what I mean, and right. it, it was executed perfectly. It, they told a great story, and they did, they did what they could for those guys at that time. Yeah, a few things with that, and I I totally agree with you when you say like it was two like pros going out there and having a great pro style match. That's exactly what they did. Um, you know, this wasn't like your hard hitting all Japan strong style sort of, you know, uh, Kings Road classic. It was nothing like that. This was not like, you know, a display of Pro Rezu or classic catches catch, but it was a really good display of like mid nineties, like, you know, North American heavyweight, you know, professional wrestling where guys go out there and they just, you know, they're, they're telling a story and they work body parts and they, hit the big moves and they you know it's a competent match but what i think was interesting about it is like hey this is in 2001 so like just thinking of the time frame seeing these two guys like in the ring together and and everything like that like muto's the champion and hall's the challenger and i'm like what else was going on in wrestling in 2001 when this was happening (laughs) right (laughs) it's like (laughs) the rock is a thing stone cold steve austin is a thing you know (laughs) biker taker has is is running rampant you know WCW has closed, you know, Shane McMahon is, the name on the contract is McMahon, but it's not Vince. (laughs) (laughs) This stuff is all happening in real time, like at the same time. So that, that part of it's like really interesting. Um, But the other thing too is like Scott, uh, probably even more so than Muda is like really, really broken down. And he goes out there and takes a lot of fucking bumps for Muto. And, like, I can't think of any other time post-1996 that I can think of Scott Hall doing a match like this. 
Yeah, I, I didn't kind of catch it. Yeah, Scott was like bumping a lot for him and just really selling for him. Yeah, it's kind of unexpected, you know. I mean, I guess given the fact that it's a, a big main event against a legend like Muto, and these guys do have history going back to the NWA um, when they wrestled with one another, you know, on, in Crockett and everything like that. But, uh, you know, um, I don't know. Like, you just think about everything that, like, Scott did in WCW um, prior to this, and it's like, yeah, all of his great matches were either going to be plunder matches, ladder matches, or multi-man tags. I can't think of a single um, straight-up, like, just one-on-one, you know, straight-up match that he had with anybody in WCW where they just went out there and had a a competent, good wrestling match like this. Like, I don't think that exists. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or at least not on this level. So, I mean, to see him kind of go out there and pay the respect and, and, you know, do the job for Muto and and really put in the effort. I think it's kind of an anomaly uh, in that respect. And considering that it's 2001 and it's Scott Hall and Kiji Muto, this could have sucked. (laughs) (laughs) And it it doesn't suck. In fact, like for me, I thought the match kind of ruled in a certain respect. I wouldn't like overhype it. I'm probably like, I don't know, three and a half on it. But I think like they worked really hard for that three and a half. Yeah, they did. So yeah, it was definitely a cool match to check out. Yeah, if you've never seen it, you want to see Scott Hall in, uh, in Japan, which, again, he spent, you know, he wrestled over 300 matches, did multiple, multiple tours, three decades. You know, this might be one to check out. Yeah. So uh, we're actually going to be doing a little format change for the recommended match of the week going well, forward. Here's my only thing, Okay. I like recommend a match of the week. Um, the format change was my idea, but my only concern is like, do people, what if people really like the recommended match of the week and they're like, oh, no, 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 we don't want you to do, you know, we don't want you to change. Okay. Um, that's my concern. But at the same time, like, I feel like the format change might be, maybe people would like it better or maybe it would help you and I better. Like, I don't know. Um, let's do this. This is what I'm going to propose on there. Let's do the format change for one week. And for those that are listening after they hear this, let's throw out a poll, maybe midweek, this coming week, and see what they think. You know what I mean? Yeah. See what the listeners think. and uh, Or we could do it after next week. You know, We could do the, the format change this week, and then after we've done it, ask the audience and see what they, what they say. So you know, without further ado, Jeremy, what are we thinking of changing? So we're thinking about changing this into an excursion match of the week to check out. As you all know, in our year-end awards, we have an excursion match of the year list where we find the best matches of the year that features New Japan wrestlers who wrestled outside of New Japan. And that is a very extensive process because we're trying to literally watch everything, anywhere that a New Japan guy goes, and especially now. With uh, New Japan oh strong, um, those and a lot of independent guys, that is kind of widening the field on who's eligible for that category. So we thought it would be a great right. way to a keep up on some of these matches, and then b to help you guys find these matches because that is like the one category that we've left where it's not required to fill in. Because we've had a lot of people say, "Oh, well, we haven't watched all this stuff," so there are some people who just don't 
who abstain from voting in that category because they feel like they haven't done a good job keeping up. But if we start well, the thing out, the thing I like about the idea of it, of excursion match of the week, well, like a like you mentioned, yes, it would help you and I um, to basically like be able to watch this stuff in real time and kind of keep track of it uh, more so than we have in the past. You know, especially with how difficult that's becoming for the reasons you stated. But at the same time, like for the listeners, for those who maybe want to keep up, instead of us just throwing it on them at the end of the year, we could say, hey, I watched XYZ match from Defy or from IWTV or RevPro or AEW or CMLL, whatever. And then we can tell them whether we think it was one worth checking out for them or not. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I think that that is a, a cool aspect of it. It's like, yeah, you know, this Wheeler, Utah, you know, dark match probably wasn't worth, <laughs> it was, you know, probably not worth checking out or, or be like, holy fuck, you know? Yeah. Doki, Doki and Taichi, you guys got to see this match. So that's kind of the, the, the appeal of it. But on the flip side, recommend a match of the week. I like digging into the archives and finding gems and being able to tell people about it. But, you know, we don't hear much feedback about it. So I don't even know if anyone's actually getting anything out of it. If this is a the part of the show where people you, you know usually tune out, or if this is something where people are like, oh, you want to get rid of the recommended match? I keep up with that every week. Like I don't know, you know. Yeah, so I guess we'll find out. Uh, my pick this week shouldn't be uh, too far of a stretch from what we normally do. So um, the recommended match, such excursion match for this week, it is on New Japan World. It is from. Impact Sacrifice from March 5th. It is a Switchblade Jay White versus one half of the Motor City Machine Guns, Alex Shelley. I did watch this match this past week. I thought it was a really good matchup here. Also, there's a ton of history, a ton of New Japan history uh, with Jay White and Shelley and some Ring of Honor history as well with the, the Search and Destroy group and... Um, so yeah, this was a really good matchup between these guys, and I think it's a match uh, so people should check out. And uh, depending on how excursion matches line up, could be um, something that's considered as a, a nominee. Yeah, well, I will definitely give that a watch this week, um, and then uh, kind of give my take on it, and then we'll go from there. Nice. So again, yeah, that is on New Japan World, Jay White versus Alex Shelley. And that is going to wrap things up for us here this week on the show. Next week, we'll be back to review the semifinals and finals of the New Japan Cup. If you enjoyed today's show, please consider making a donation by visiting socialsuitbucks.com slash donate and click on the donate button under the Keeping It Strong style logo. Make sure you connect with us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at KI Strong Style. You can follow the network at Total Suplex. Follow me at Jeremy L. Donovan on Facebook. We are Facebook.com slash Social Suplex. You can also find us in the Facebook group Wrestling Squared Circle, Facebook.com slash group slash Wrestling Squared Circle. On Instagram, we're at Social Suplex. On Reddit, I'm the Pro Black Guy. Just keeping a strong style. You can email me, Jeremy, at Social Suplex.com. And check out all the other shows that we have here on the Social Suplex Podcast Network. We have One Nation Radio, hosted by Rich Fatter and James Boyd. The Grave Consequences podcast, hosted by Caleb and Maserati. All Things Elite with Floyd and Austin. The AW Match Guide podcast, hosted by Sir Sam. And the Great Match Generator, hosted by Danny. 
Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and review. And we will catch you next week on Keeping It Strong Style, the ace of podcasts. That was Jeremy. I'm Josh. Thank you for listening. And Ichiban. Thank you for listening to Keeping It Strong Style. We'll see you next time.